here with a mission, sir? I am. Trying to get me back in the world? Trying to save it. You think you're the only superhero in the world? You've become part of a bigger universe. You just don't know it yet. What if I told you we were putting a team together? Who's we? I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. This is now playing's Avengers Retrospective Series. The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes type thing. Part of the now playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. Well, I guess that's worth a look. Hosted by Arnie. Your bouncing, badass, baby brother. Jacob. We do need backup. That's your department. And Stuart. Some people call me a terrorist. I consider myself a teacher. What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, we will be reviewing all the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies featuring the superheroes Iron Man. I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly. The Incredible Hulk. He was a freak accident. The goal is to do it better. Thor. You're big. Fourth bigger. Captain America. How many of you are ready to help me stock old Adolf on the job? And the Avengers. I have an army. We have a Hulk. Let me emphasize that what I'm about to share with you is tremendously sensitive both to me personally and the army. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. I've always been more curious than cautious. So, are we going to do this? Gentlemen, you're up. Your next lesson, Iron Man 3, starring Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Don Cheadle, Guy Pierce, Rebecca Hall, John Favreau, Ben Kingsley, and directed by Shane Black. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and you'll never see me coming. (laughs) And available for children's parties. What is that voice? (laughs) Stuart in L.A. This is Jacob, and no politics here, just good old-fashioned podcasting. I truly was going to try to do a Kingsley intro, but Mm. that accent he does is just so amazing, I couldn't pull it off. Good try, Arnie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just sat there and rewatched the trailer again and again and again. Some call me a teacher. I love how he just elongates his R's. Yes, there is a there. <laughs> only Kingsley can do it. He's the only white man that can go Asian. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but we are back with the Avengers. After last year's pinnacle, we all built up to that massive Avengers movie. Now we're just playing keep up. Phase two, Arnie. Don't you know that's what they're calling this? No doubt that this is a more muted, dialed down entry here. They clearly want to reset expectations. 
And I think that after last year, it's hard to imagine it was only a year ago, but yeah, the frenzy that I stepped into when I went to that opening of Avengers, yeah, it's a different thing here. There's no way they could keep duplicating that with every new Marvel entry. It's just Iron Man, but hey, at least it's Downing. Yeah, it is the best Avenger out there. The one who, I think, if you listen back to our original Avengers retrospective, the films that I appreciated the most. I recommended both Iron Man, Iron Man 2. The other ones never quite gelled for me, and he is the most charismatic. I mean, if we're going to have a solo one, this is the one I want to see. That's absolutely my feeling. He's the one who kicked off Phase 1. He's the one who's kicking off Phase 2. Unlike Phase 1, there's only one Iron Man movie planned for Phase 2, and we'll talk about it, but this is the end of Downey's contract. This is the last film he's obligated to do. I was actually at Comic-Con last year, got to participate in a press interview with Robert Downey Jr. Very cool, I got to ask him a question. Geekgasm. And one of the questions, of course, he was asked, because it was him, Shane Black, Don Cheadle, and Kevin Feige, who is the Marvel guy who runs all of this, he was asked if he would do another one, and he looked right at Kevin and said, well, Marvel can back up the money truck. And Kevin didn't seem too inclined to back up that truck. Because we've talked about it before in the Avengers podcast, if Marvel is anything, they're cheap. (laughs) But Marvel's not Marvel anymore. It's worth pointing out as well, Phase 2 is also a new era for not only Iron Man, but for the company. They're making this under the umbrella. And it's a big old umbrella, I gotta say. Disney's got deep pockets. That they do, and yeah, they bought Marvel right around the time that Captain America and Thor were coming out. Avengers was certainly under that umbrella, but it was put into motion far before Disney. I can say that Phase 2 interests me not just as more Avengers movies, but to see now that this is all being envisioned under the helm of Disney, what are they going to do? And this interests me not just as a Marvel fan, but as a Star Wars fan, because they've also bought Lucasfilm, they're announcing a Avengers-esque approach to Star Wars with a movie every year, three forming a trilogy, plus spin-offs in between, and I'm curious if the House of Mouse can pull it off, and watching what they do with Avengers, to me, is very much indicative of how they'll handle Star Wars. Right. And that comes to the forefront as I'm watching this. I'm going to be interested on your guys' take, but I felt that this was a much more Disneyfied Marvel movie than we have seen in the past. I felt that it was represented, shall we say, but not entirely. I didn't feel like the whole movie was that. I still feel at the end of the day, we've got Downey, and he may be at the end here. I'm curious to follow him and see if this is a goodbye or whether it's just a rethink. Is he going to give us a cliffhanger? Is he keeping us in suspense about whether he's coming back? Or is this truly the final Iron Man for him? That is my curiosity when I'm approaching this. I just don't know whether I'm watching someone say goodbye or give me money. Or both. Give me money or goodbye. Yes. But I do recognize that Downey's brought a friend along. If he's going to go out, he's going out with one of his buds. One of the people responsible for his comeback, quite frankly, Shane Black. I am a fan of this man and have been since the 80s. I think if we were to do a Shane Black retrospective, there would be only two films of his I wouldn't recommend. The Long Kiss Goodnight and the audience alienating, because I'm sure every listener but me likes this, The Monster Squad. 
No, I can back you up there. It doesn't hold up. I no. watched it recently. I loved it in the 80s. I rewatched it actually just last year. No, does not hold up. But this is the man who launched to fame with the original Lethal Weapon. The amazing original Lethal Weapon. The one I haven't seen. <laughs> Wow. Have you seen like three and four? Have you seen those ones, Stuart? <laughs> I turned four off, but I saw <laughs> two for sure and three. Yeah, one is its own beast. It's really so much better than any of the ones that followed. He also did The Last Boy Scout. A lot of people didn't like it. I did. He did Last Action Hero. A lot of people didn't like it. I did. And then his only other directorial film, the one you're referring with Downey, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I saw before Iron Man came out just because Kilmer, Downey, there are a couple washups who I liked back in the day. I'll watch that film. Loved, loved, loved that film. Yeah, it's a real fun movie. I do recommend that you seek it out. It was kind of a Hollywood story. You know, I feel like Shane Black has lived the Hollywood story here at this point. Incredible early success, high highs, lived in a giant palatial mansion, and then had it all taken away from him with drugs, alcohol, the whole typical behind-the-scenes story, the thing we always hear that Hollywood does to young talent, corrupting, destroying, leaving them with nothing. His touch is really evident as we approach this story, be it a conclusion for Iron Man or just a continuation. I will always think of this one as the Shane Black entry in the series. It may be a Disney property, and they may have their fingerprints on it, but I see a lot of black here, too. I agree, and we'll talk about it as we go through, but I was having callbacks to other Shane Black movies at the time that I was watching this. Sure. And just the Shane Black story. I feel like he projected himself into this movie. And I know Downey had a lot of influence over his hiring. I've read a lot of interviews with both of them. He is the one who got Shane Black the interview, but Shane Black had to pitch the concept and sell Disney that he was the right guy to do it. This is his story that he co-wrote, he directed. If it's anyone's vision, it's his, and Favreau is just there for a glorified cameo. Yeah, that was somewhat by choice, right? He was already making motions towards this at Iron Man 2. We knew that he was unhappy. There's that sticky middle section where I felt like Marvel completely took the movie away from him. We knew that Favreau wasn't coming back. There's no way that he was going to carry out the vision to the end of the conclusion. It's too bad. He had clear ideas with Iron Man that he was going to bring in the Mandarin and that he was going to do something. We'll never know what his Mandarin might be, but the Mandarin we get here... Definitely a Shane Black Mandarin. I have so many questions. But you mentioned the Mandarin. One of the things that I'd always read is Favreau going, we can't do the Mandarin. He doesn't fit in this world. Magic rings, the yellow menace. How are you going to possibly sell that? Well, one of the ways they sold that is by having extensive conversations with the Chinese going, yeah, we're going to do this Mandarin character, but what can we do to make it so your billion people come and see this movie? How about not offending them? Who wasn't cringing? Hello, Iron Man! I'm your politically incorrect villain! It's something no one was looking forward to. I know I wasn't. I was prepared with daggers to go after Kingsley 
really for doing this. It just didn't feel right. But clearly the thought was, at least on the surface, we'll create a character that isn't as offensive as it could be. Was that the impulse that they <laughs> had to do to, to appease the Chinese, that we're just going to create shadings to him? We're trying to create a dimension to this character that will ultimately make him less hateful? The way they sell him is they make no references to China at all. They have, let's see, an Englishman playing a semi-Middle Eastern person named after a Chinese title or an orange. <laughs> I, I always think orange. And, and I do think they kind of get away from that. They call him master a lot, too. There's very few Mandarin. The word Mandarin doesn't come up that often. And I think that was as much to avoid offending orange growers as it is the Chinese. But I get you. It's Osama bin Laden. Obviously, the archetype here is the super terrorist of our times. Clearly, he's meant to represent very quickly. We see it in commercials in, the, in this movie that he is Osama bin Laden. And they even make that comparison pretty early on. They call out Osama bin Laden here. My question is, Arnie, this might have been a real expensive movie for you. Did you go over to China to see their special cut of the film? I did not. I read some descriptions about it, though. I hope they put some of it out on video because there's a couple of scenes I'd like to see. What they did was they filmed an extra, I dare not call it subplot. They had said in previous press materials that there was going to be this extra subplot featuring stars of Chinese cinema. The heart doctor who has literally like three seconds of screen time at the opening of the film and three more at the end gets a few minutes of footage in the Chinese version Oh, no way. There's a different version of the movie floating around, presumably in Chinese, that only Chinese audiences are going to see. Yeah, but what I absolutely love is that some of this extra four minutes of footage is blatant product placement. The movie opens with words on a screen. How does Iron Man fly so high? He drinks ye, which is <laughs> milk. Hey, come on, is that any worse than the Sun Oracle server sitting in the background of half the shots here? It is. It is worse. It is worse than the Fios ads. It is worse than all of it. <laughs> wow, that is really amazing. Uh, you're right. My interest is peaked. I would like to see that footage. Yeah, what I've read is the Chinese are saying this is like our actors walked onto the wrong set. What is going on? Shane Black had no involvement in interviews. He goes, yeah, I've seen some of the footage they've done. It looks like it'll go in okay. <laughs> okay, so Downey, none of the creative principles that made the rest of this movie really know what's in there or are that involved. This is a Marvel appeasement offering. Four minutes? Yeah, and it sounded like it was going to be a lot more than four minutes in the pre-release materials. In the final cut, four minutes, some of which is milk ad. <laughs> okay, so... Uh uh, no, he doesn't even go to Shanghai in this movie. I mean, there's no story strands that he could solve, but all right. There's some Chinese people cheering on Iron Man at one point, and I, maybe they inserted CGI Iron Suit doing something, and there's that Heart Doctor, and that is the limit of it. And the Heart Doctor is in our cut, and very important, kind of, in our cut. You know what? I did not put together that, but now I know what you're saying. Okay, well, I'll sit on that, process it, and continue on. Maybe you give me a chance to think about all of it, Arnie, in a plot summary. Tony Stark is suffering from 
from PTSD after the alien attack in New York. But when Tony's bodyguard and friend, Happy Hogan, is injured in a Mandarin bombing, Tony is drawn into the hunt. The Mandarin's people destroy Tony's mansion, and Tony and his girlfriend, Pepper Potts, barely escape with their lives. Presumed dead and with no armor, Tony must rely only on his wits and a child's sidekick to figure out the Mandarin's location. What Tony finds is that the Mandarin is just a figurehead, an actor pretending to be a terrorist. The true mastermind is Aldrich Killian, head of think tank Advanced Idea Mechanics, or AIM for short. Aldrich had approached Tony to join AIM in 99 but was ignored, but did partner with Tony's one-night stand Maya Hansen, who was working on a project called Extremis that would rewrite the human genome, allowing advanced healing and even regrowth of limbs. Extremis does work, but it also gives its subjects the ability to breathe fire and melt things with their hands. And if the subject can't regulate, they explode, thus the bombings for which the Mandarin is taking credit. It wasn't a bomb going off, but a failed extremist experiment in a public place. Aldrich's larger plot is to kidnap and execute the President of the United States. We'll talk about it, but Tony and his friend Colonel James Rhodes, formerly known as War Machine, but now rebranded the Iron Patriot, are also both taken hostage, and though they escape, they must go without armor to rescue the President and Pepper Potts, who Aldrich also took hostage and injected with extremis. Yes, everyone is captured in this film. A huge fight ensues, with Stark's 35 other armors joining the party against the extremist and soldiers, and in the end, the president is saved by Rhodes, and Tony's suits kill all the extremist soldiers, save for Killian, who Tony cannot stop, but is eventually put down by extremist-enabled Pepper. And then with the bad guys stopped, Tony has his every armor suit self-destruct, and in an overdubbed monologue, he tells us he stabilized Pepper's extremist formula, underwent heart surgery to remove the shrapnel from his chest, allowing him to no longer wear an arc reactor, and drives his high-priced sports car into the sunset with the words, I am Iron Man. So that is it, and I have to tell you, I am so happy that I'm a Marvel fan, because when we did our whole Avengers series, the big thing was I hadn't read very many of the comics, and I still haven't, but I was so hyped for Iron Man 3, I actually read some comics conveniently and coincidentally as I was spoiler free from this I read one called Extremis yeah Extremis by Warren Ellis considered one of the best Iron Man stories one of my favorite writers that storyline has played parts in all of these films but yeah it comes to the forefront here I was so glad to have read that because otherwise I might have been sitting there like what the hell <laughs> Extremis fire breathing bombing <laughs> what even if you did read Extremis you might be saying what the hell what's the fire breathing here I was wondering if other people were saying what the hell during these moments. So it wasn't just me. Good. <laughs> I did only see this movie once. I went opening night. IMAX did the whole thing. I won't tell you my thoughts on the movie, but I do want to put it out there right out first and foremost. I was really angry, guys. This movie is not 3D. This is post-conversion 3D. If you want to see a little snowflakes and ash... You can see them coming out at you. But this is not a 3D movie. And whatever I feel about the rest of the movie, I want to put it out there. Not recommend on this 3D job. See it in 2D. I'm right there with you, Stuart. I was shocked. You know, usually I really notice the 3D. It really pops when things are flying around in midair. And this was flat, like you said, except for some snowflakes and ashes. Yeah. 
not recommend on this 3D. Oh, right there with both of you. I'm watching this movie in 3D and going, this must be a post-conversion job. This has to be. This is crap 3D. Mm. And sitting through the entire credits, because Marvel has Pavlovian trained me to do that. It shocks me that people still get up when the credits start. Yeah. No one's in my theater. Not a single person. Yeah. And when I saw the post-2D, 3D conversion credits roll, I went, I knew it! Jerks! Yeah. And then I saw it a second time in IMAX 3D, still crappy, 3D post-conversion, bad across the board, don't do it. See this in 2D as it was meant to be seen. Correct. Yep. Yeah, I saw this mid-Saturday morning, around the same time I saw The Avengers, which was packed, sold out. This, maybe a quarter full audience, and and they were older, too. I didn't see a lot of kids, which I thought was weird. Same here. I think that's appropriate for this film, but (laughs) it was primarily adult audiences around my age, you know, 30s, in both screenings I went to. Well, come on, let's face it. Right from the prologue, they tell you you need to be old enough to remember the millennium, the turn of our (laughs) new century here. Wow, we're doing uh, retro on that. I do feel old, Arnie. You're right. (laughs) Yeah, when they call back that the millennium was 13 years ago, I'm like, really? I thought that was just like a year or two ago. I'm old. Yeah, I love that they make a Y2K joke. They think that an explosion is Y2K happening. But I'm old enough to groove to blue. I can die, I can die, I love that song. You loved it then. I did, yes. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to have a change of heart now, but it did set the tone. And yes, that tone for the start of this movie, 1999. It's a big conference in Switzerland, and we've heard about this in Iron Man before. I didn't catch it my first time watching it, but this is the conference where Tony met Jensen, the doctor who would save his life in that cave in Iron Man 1, and Jensen referenced seeing Tony Stark give a speech where he was so blitzed he was surprised he could even stand up, let alone give that speech. Here we are right after the speech, and Jensen is there for a second. Oh, okay. I thought I saw some Middle Eastern-looking guy. I thought, oh, maybe that's going to be Ben Kingsley later on, but no, that makes sense now. The fact that they singled him out, he goes, I met a guy named Ho, finally. I knew that this guy must be important. I thought it was to this movie. I had forgotten, quite frankly, this was not a case where I had gone back and seen Iron Man 1 and 2 again. I kind of came into this one cold, so I didn't remember that detail, and I imagine, Arnie, you've seen Iron Man more than I've seen most movies. (laughs) Yeah, every time it's on FX, I'm watching it, and so I had some facial recognition. I was more interested in my first watching in Dr. Hope, going, ah, there's that Chinese guy who has extra scenes. But isn't isn't it Wu? No, it's Hope. He finally met a man named Hope. No, it's Ho. Ho? Yeah, you got you missed the joke. Yeah, Ho was the guy, the surgery guy. I thought it was Hope too, Arnie. Okay, okay. So I never knew Yinsen's first name was Ho. Yes. All right, that's all very confusing. You're introduced to a bunch of people who have bigger parts not in this movie (laughs) in a very short time named Wu and Ho. Yes, yes. (laughs) Wu is the one that will go on and entertain Chinese audiences with milk ads for four more minutes. (laughs) And Ho is the one who was very heartbreaking when he died in Iron Man Part 1. But really, this is all a setup to introduce us not to old characters or Chinese characters, but to new characters. Maya Hansen 
who is a scientist that Tony is successfully attempting to bed. Yeah, Rebecca Hall. I like her. I, she had a good part in Frost Nixon, Vicky, Christina Barcelona. She doesn't do these kinds of movies typically. I think of her in smaller stuff, but I always like seeing her. And then a scenery-chewing Guy Pierce. Now, here's somebody I like, Memento, L.A. Confidential. We saw him in Prometheus. Oh, and he's still doing this. <laughs> I had no idea Guy Pierce was in this movie. I usually try for now playing to go into these films pretty spoiler-free. I had no idea. I see this guy with his, like, greasy long hair. I'm having flashbacks, I think, to, like, Val Kilmer and The Saint or something, but Guy Pierce came to me second. I was trying to figure out who this was. It came clear when we see him later on in the film. Yeah, Guy Pierce comes in this doing this horrible, horrible, I'm a geek. I mean, we saw Jim Carrey kind of do the same thing in Batman Forever. <laughs> oh, boy, was that the wrong tone to set with me. I'm like, really? You couldn't just make it more obvious that you're the villain of this film than going to be like, I'm your nerdy fanboy. Please like me. And of course, Tony, like all of us, is repulsed and leaves him hanging on New Year's Eve on the rooftop. I'll tell you two things. First of all, I found Aldrich Killian's gross teeth and nappy hair so impactful that the rest of the movie, when he's supposed to be suave, I'm still staring at his teeth looking for gunk. <laughs> that hair, even when he cuts it short, they talk about an oil tanker, an oil spill in this film. I think it went straight into his hair. <laughs> Pierce is a relatively good-looking guy. Like, why does he keep doing these parts? This and Prometheus, where he's under latex. Well, here it's actually a point, because the next time we're going to see him, he is going to be that guy, Pierce. And it's going to be because he has this thing that Tony won't buy. But because of the extremist comic, I didn't think he was the villain. I thought, at best, he was a henchman. Keep in mind, all the trailers, you'll never see me coming. So I'm expecting the Mandarin to be the villain. In Extremis, Aldra Killian, like, offs himself in the first few pages. He commits suicide for having created Extremis. So I really expect Guy Pierce to be a real glorified cameo when he's still alive in the modern times. I think he's the Mandarin's henchman. That's what they want me to believe. I fully believe it. I never once think he's the mastermind until it's revealed. It's not just the trailers that fool you. It was Lego. Lego put out these sets where the Mandarin has all these different vehicles, and I'm thinking, okay, there's going to be this big fight with all this tech, but no, it's going to go in a very different place here. They telegraph it to me really, really obviously. It's in the voiceover. Downey says, I created monsters that day, and I didn't even know it. He didn't just say monster. He said monsters, plural. So now I know. I know the big reveal. I know that Rebecca Hall's character and Guy Pierce's character are going to be in on it and that they're going to be responsible. I know who the villain is within seconds. And it's going to take me another hour and a half to have it revealed to me. Oh, yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that at least Aldrich Killian is going to be a villain here. I don't know if I was able to shout out that the twist is going to be, but I figured he was going to be one of the main baddies here. What we'll find out, he's doing genetic research. He's brain mapping. When he returns to the story, he's trying again to sell Stark Industries now that Pepper's in charge of here. I thought he literally was the Mandarin. I thought that this was going to be a Die Another Day plot, Arnie. I thought it was going to be an Asian that turned white and used this extremist stuff like oh, no <laughs> i literally thought that he was going to physically transform back and forth between ben kingsley and guy pierce i thought he might transform into a giant head with stubby arms and legs though because he's in charge of aim yeah which made marjorie so happy aim advanced idea mechanics is right out of the marvel comics run by modok <laughs> 
the mental organism designed only for killing this crazy purple and yellow floating head. And as soon as they say aim, Marjorie's like, do we get Modoc in this? <laughs> I thought the same thing. And I was thinking of Marjorie too. I'm like, oh, she must be loving this. There were no guys in yellow bio suits. There was no floating head yet, but they've opened a door. I've seen enough Marvel at this point to know that there's going to be a lot of in-jokes and things going on I will never understand. Don't know what a MODOK is, didn't expect a <laughs> MODOK, but I did expect a guy Pierce to, yes, go back and forth and be the Mandarin. That was the quote-unquote surprise that didn't happen, I was certain of, in these early scenes of that. Like, oh, he's using his magical DNA stuff to become this super terrorist. How is this opening working for you guys? I mean, this is the third part. This is Iron Man. And we're getting voiceovers. We're getting this long flashback where it's Tony, you know, being Tony, trying to bet a scientist that's hot. But it feels like a whole lot of exposition going on. And I thought it was a weird place to start. I guess especially coming out of the Avengers. I wanted to see how is he affected from that film. I'm liking the flashback because we get to see Tony be Tony, right? Once you give Tony a monogamous relationship, you've already neutered some of Downey's fun. That was part of the great part of the first one was just how salacious he was with the reporter and everything. And even in the second one, he had a lot of that. Here, he's going to be neutered. It's nice to have this fun scene. I'm watching the scene. I'm happy to see Happy. I'm happy to see Tony. I'm wondering where Pepper is in 1999 because she's not in Shanghai. But I'm going with it just fine because I understand these characters being set up are going to be important to the rest. And I'm glad that they gave us this versus later on just going, oh, yes, this is a woman I met back in 1999. Well, you know what? They don't start with any of this. The very first image is a series of Iron Man suits exploding. And him talking about we create our own demons. What I remains in my head all the way into the end is, oh, Downey's walking away. This is the end of Downey. He's not going to do this anymore. This is a goodbye story. He calls Rebecca Hall and Guy Pierce monsters, but the demons that he creates, it's the suit. He's not going to do this. Stuart, you say this is about not Tony having demons, but Robert Downey Jr. walking away. And I really get something in his performance about that. He never seems quite as charismatic as he has in those other films. There's something tired. I mean, he's going to talk about in this film that he's tired and he can't sleep. I think that comes out in this film. He doesn't seem as engaged. He has his moments. There's definitely moments yeah. where he shines. But overall, his performance, he just doesn't seem as into it as before. It's an amazing optical illusion. He's giving us what he always has. I see nothing different on the surface than anything he did in Iron Man 2, Avengers, or 1. But I mentioned this in Avengers. At that point, I identified it as Downey's the weak link because he's not working well in the team format. And now I'm starting to feel something different. And I don't know what it is. But it's either I've gotten tired of the shtick or Downey doesn't want to be here anymore and he's just on autopilot. He flipped that switch and his persona is doing the Tony Starkisms, but he himself, his soul, is not invested with it when he was a actor still trying to prove he could lead a multi-million dollar movie franchise back with Iron Man 1. He had something to prove with that first film that he doesn't now. And yeah, I do feel like the story of this movie is as much about Tony Stark 
as it is about Robert Downey Jr. When we find him, he's a insomniac shut-in, really. He's kind of gone Howard Hughes. He wears it better. He doesn't pee in milk jugs. <laughs> but I get the sense he doesn't even leave the house anymore. He does not run Stark Enterprises. Pepper's doing all of that. He's just knocking out endless versions of the suit, kind of like what he probably feels like Hollywood wants him to do with these Iron Man movies. Just keep doing it again, again, and again. And he's racked with fear and exhaustion. I'm going to disagree with you guys. I get this out of the character. I'm not going to say that I'm going to put this on Downey. Don't downplay Downey's acting ability. I've been a fan of Downey since the 80s. I saw him in Chaplin. I saw Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and that three-way movie with Heather Graham because of Downey. I think this guy can act. Even at his highest, he could act. And at his lowest, he can act. I'm taking this all as Tony Stark. I'm not going to start projecting Robert Downey Jr. onto this. I'm not saying he can't act. I have enjoyed his performances and the other films. I got it from that flashback where he should be that Tony from Iron Man 1. I felt it even there that he was tired and that there was something missing to it. And not just when we catch up to the future. And I want to say, I do think Downey is a good dramatic actor, and I have seen him in some of these roles. In this movie, his weakest moments are when he has these anxiety attacks, when he really goes full on, oh, my nightmares are coming true. He's pretty bad when he has to flip out for no reason and pull a car over and say, oh, I'm freaking out. It may be because the writing's not very good, but he is not able to find the truth in those moments. They feel phony. I'll completely agree with that. I bought the one in the restaurant where he's having dinner with Rhodey. Finally, we get Rhodey twice in a row, same actor, Don Cheadle's back. He wasn't fired. And that scene, I completely went with. I liked how it happened because this little kid goes, how did you escape the wormhole? I'm not sure if that kid is really saying it, if Downey's hallucinating, but that scene, the way it was completely done, was sold to me well. Every other panic attack after that, they're over way too quickly. There's no long-lasting repercussions. There's seemingly no reason why they come. There's seemingly no reasons why they're over. So I think it was a writing and editing issue more than an acting issue, although all three combined made me kind of roll my eyes every time he had one. I agree with you, Arnie. I like the restaurant scene where he flips out. This is one of my big problems with the film. We talked about this in The Amazing Spider-Man, and I feel like we bring this up with all these comic book movies now that are meant to be these long franchises. I said I wanted to see how was Tony dealing with the Avengers, how is the world dealing with this alien attack? And this is where we get that. He's having these post-traumatic attacks, these anxiety attacks. We got these kids asking about wormholes. I'm pretty sure that there's some kind of possession. There's something going on. I'm sure we'll find out in Avengers 2 what this all is because we don't get an answer here. But I thought, okay, here's an interesting character arc for Tony. He's been to war. We started this franchise off with him in Afghanistan. We're going to deal with terrorism here. Yeah, let's tell this story about the American soldier trying to deal with the after effects of war with post-traumatic stress syndrome and it doesn't go anywhere it's maddening for me because i like this development and i just wish there was some resolution no you just mentioned new york and he flips out i'm gonna disagree with you that you think this will come back later I think this is the arc here. It's so subtle. I'm giving the movie a lot by doing this, and it took me two viewings to piece it all together. But these stress results are Tony Stark feeling inadequate. 
He calls himself, I'm just a man in a can. He's faced gods and aliens. He's scared to death about these aliens attacking and him being powerless to do it. Stuart, you describe a Howard Hughes type quality with these armors like it's obsessive. I think it's obsessive in a defensive kind of way. I think it's kind of like after 9-11, people had the post-traumatic stress of how are we going to protect ourselves from bin Laden and how are we going to protect ourselves from domestic attacks? He's wondering, how can I protect Pepper, the woman I love, from another alien attack? These aliens are coming back. That's what Avengers 2 is going to follow up on, or maybe Guardians of the Galaxy with the raccoon. A future Marvel movie will follow up on that strand, but this is him trying to come to terms with being good enough to stand toe-to-toe with these aliens. Despite being the best Avenger, Tony doesn't feel like he's worthy of being an Avenger is what I'm getting out of this. And that's his panic attacks. His panic attacks, his powerlessness, and constantly trying to make badass baby brother armor to be good enough to deflect that when it comes. Yeah, it's a weird thing because the character has always been so arrogant, even in his darkest moments. I've never seen him vulnerable, and here he has to give us a Tony without armor, quite literally, later in the movie. This movie is designed to give someone their personal hell. It is a Shane Black kind of scenario here. Again, I bring it back to Shane Black. This doesn't feel implemented by Disney. This feels like the story that Downey lived when he was messed up on drugs and that Shane Black lived when Hollywood burned him and he went through that same spiral here. This is a story about surviving your success. And I think that the kids here are actually meant to lighten it up and because Disney demands it. I agree with you, Stuart. I think that this is a lot of Shane Black, but I'm not saying it's just his story because I'm taken back to Riggs in the original Lethal Weapon, a damaged character, an action hero who eats his gun nightly, wondering if this is the night he pulls the trigger. Psychologically damaged action heroes are Shane Black's forte. So this fits right in with that. I was taken to Lethal Weapon. And I do like a lot of the subtext going on in this film. I get that this is a damaged character, that you have all these robot suits that are hollow. I get the symbolism. If you don't get that, the Mandarin will call it out later with the symbol of a Chinese fortune cookie, an American invention that's hollow and full of lies. And we could see Tony going through that same struggle. Like, I like these ideas. I like this subtext. Maybe it's just not the writing is tight enough to really bring this out and make this feel like a better film. It kind of feels mishmashed together. This is the fourth or fifth or sixth attempt at this script. Is this the writing or is this the editing? This is Shane Black's only second time directing. And I have with this movie the exact same feeling I had with Iron Man 2. How much did they cut out of this thing? Not enough, Arnie. No, I think they cut too much. Is it me or does this first half hour feel like a montage? I don't get to see much about the relationship between Tony and Pepper. Every time we see them, it's antagonistic. He's ignoring Pepper and letting literally the suit be his stand-in while he does pull-ups in the basement. He's buying her a giant, giant bunny like he doesn't know her at all for a Christmas gift. And all of this is going on. He's giving us this constant voiceover. It's bad enough that the Mark 42 didn't work. But then I turn on the television. And you get the Mandarin there talking about a U.S. attack that he's done. I feel like I'm watching a montage for 40 minutes of this movie where I should be watching character development and plot. That's because we have two conceptions of the character that aren't melding. They want to tell the most anxious anxiety-filled, dramatic story yet, 
And yet, we want to see Downey be Downey. And so, yeah, they try to have it both ways by having forced comedy in here while he's flipping out. And I think that's really the disconnect. This is the first Iron Man movie where I never laughed out loud. Oh, I did. I don't think that the comedy here is nearly as strong. I don't know whether it's I'm growing tired of the joke or they just didn't write the jokes well enough this time. But I smiled, and there was a couple things I identified as, oh, that's kind of funny. I never laughed out loud in this movie. And this first part of the film is really reliant on these kinds of jokes to buoy what the story they really want to tell is, which is that, yes, Tony is insecure. They wanted to make that character crazier than what they really could do because, well, we just wouldn't accept a beginning where Downey didn't make us laugh. And it seems undersold. When we last saw him, he was happily enjoying shawarma with some friends. He didn't seem too disturbed. No one was traumatized by Avengers. Nobody. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it is the editing. I don't want this film to be any longer. Maybe they just cut out the wrong stuff and kept in the wrong stuff. I feel like this first act is a montage. I'm never getting engaged in it. It's just, here's this piece of information. Here's this piece of exposition. Here's this piece. Here's this piece. The things I'm wondering about. Why am I watching a Christmas film? What does Christmas have to do with this? I guess we see some snow, but it's just so weird. Some of the choices they make and the things they decide to leave in it does seem yeah maybe it is an editing problem not a writing problem well this movie will be available for purchase at christmas time i was thinking (laughs) of that i'm sure that was the disney angle that's how they sold it to the suits but i do think that this is a resurrection story this is about a character that dies and does come back but that's an awfully dramatic take on it with the disconnect for me and throughout much of the film is that there is a really stark I'm at my lowest, Downey climbing into a stranger's house and being found drunk. Those kinds of horror tales, they're wanting to dramatize that here, and yet they really don't want to make it a serious work. I would say this is the silliest, most slapstick-filled of the three Iron Man films. It's the one that relies heaviest on the comedy, which is too bad because I think it's the one with the weakest comedy. Yeah, this is Dark Knight Rises, but they don't want it to be dark. And there was people wondering this when that trailer came out where you see the mansion being blown up and everything. They do want it to be the light Tony Stark. And I just don't know. I guess we'll be discussing this if that works throughout this film. I'd say it's more Dark Knight than Dark Knight Rises in its take on terrorism. I mean, what we have here at the beginning is Tony dealing with a domestic terrorist threat. And kind of like the Joker, the Mandarin is doing these strange videos and bombings and terrorizing the country. And can I just say that I'm a little bit shocked, happily so, but a little bit shocked because this movie is coming out so close after the Boston Marathon bombing. This movie's about bombings in regular places in the U.S. done by Americans, just kind of like this Boston situation. They've delayed movies like V for Vendetta for far less. But they never pulled Dark Knight Rises. There's a lot of money tied up in this May 3rd date. It would have been very hard. I think if the marathon had happened the same week, they might have waited. But Americans have notoriously short attention spans, and this is a global endeavor. They released it in other parts of the world first. It's worth pointing out. It wasn't the month early release that Avengers had, but I think audiences in most countries got to see this a week before we did. Man, this man Chinese bombing. 
they really blew an opportunity to get a, rid of a lot of scummy panhandling superheroes. If you've ever been there in person, they really <laughs> cleaned that Chinese theater up for the shoot. It's a secret desire. I hate to say it, but it is a secret <laughs> desire that all people who live in L.A. want to see happen. That area of town is just gross. I'm not saying I want people vaporized, but I wouldn't cry if they started over on that city block. Yeah, they only had one guy who was dressed like a silver mime. And having been there myself, I'm like, okay, this is a backlot, right? Because you couldn't get everybody out in front of Man's Chinese Theater. There's going to be a Pinhead, a Freddy, a Superman, a Batman. There would be no room to maneuver, and there would be far more casualties. Yeah, they call out, what, like 15 casualties here. No way, no way, if this was the real thing. That was just the cosplayers. (laughs) But yeah, this is where it all starts to come together. We see Aldrich Killian has changed and he's approaching Pepper Potts for business, but he's got this henchman that looks like he stepped right out of a Guy Ritchie movie and Happy doesn't trust him and he follows him and he's doing some kind of drop of a briefcase. And before you know it, a guy is turning orange on the inside and exploding and Happy is comatose. Right. And now everything is clear. If it wasn't before, we think about that prologue. Happy snapped a leaf off of a plant that had been experimented on and it blew up. We know everything. Killian was a crazy-looking guy with a cane and bug teeth, and now he's a handsome dude. We know everything. We know that Maya got together with Aldrich and that they're doing this. There's really no mystery. The mystery is how quickly is Tony going to figure this out. But we know what's going on, and we know who the culprits are. I'll admit I'm not sure how involved Maya is. They call it Extremis. She called her thing Extremis. I know it's her invention, but is she in on the bombings? Is she in on the Mandarin? That's something that they play with, and I didn't figure out until it's eventually made very explicit. I felt like that was a phony baloney surprise. She comes to the Stark mansion for discernibly no reason other than to collect Tony on the week before Christmas. I mean, everyone's taken off, but she's entirely suspicious. I know that she's in on it. Yeah, what raises my guard is when she says, hey, turn off all your surveillance equipment so I can talk to you. Okay, that's bad news right there. (laughs) Whatever her plans are, they're not good. She's the other woman. Let's put it in perspective in that way. She is a one-night stand from Tony's past that is is now inserting herself into his very home in front of the wife that is trying to get him out the door into protection. We know we can't like this character. Even if you haven't guessed the surprise that she's working with the Mandarin, we know that she is a bad influence, that what she is doing is no good. I do find it really weird that Tony had to give out his address to the Mandarin. We know Iron Man is Tony Stark. Pretty easy to look up some dude's address. It's weird that the news and Maya and the Mandarin and all these people, they didn't know where Tony was until he gave out his address on the news. Yeah, I think they want to lay the blame on Tony, that Tony acted irrationally because Happy was put into a coma. Tony is blinded by revenge and it's an entirely false moment. He tells the tabloid reporters that he's going to make it personal. It's not about policies or governments. He's just going to kill the Mandarin. But then he breaks the tabloid guy's phone that's recording it because, what, he resents being able to send that message out? But it still goes out? I was confused by breaking the phone. Yeah, everyone knows how he lives, who he is. It's the whole idea of Iron Man is that I can walk into a chain restaurant and have a beer at the bar and no one's going to mess with me because they know I had the suit parked out by the motorcycle. He can live 
openly. That was the way it was. So for him to give out the address would have been something already all over the internet. Everyone knows where Tony lives, where he goes, what he wants to do. You don't mess with him because he has the suits. What seems really weird, too, is that the government knows about the Mandarin. They've redubbed War Machine the Iron Patriot to go after him, to find him. And that's why Tony's not doing anything until Happy gets put into a coma. But it's just so weird that here's the American government. We know their shield. We saw that in Avengers. Here's this terrorist that's blowing up people somehow without any bombs being able to be detected. And no, it's not until Tony decides that he's going to go after him that anything really happens. Okay, this is one of my problems with the movie is... You mentioned the Dark Knight, Jacob, and what is it at the end of Batman Begins that Commissioner Gordon is worried about? Escalation, right? Once you've had the Avengers, that is escalation. How do you go back? This is a movie that's constantly referencing the Avengers. They're talking about the wormhole. They're talking about the aliens. They're talking about a god who fell from the sky with a big hammer. And yet, the president is in danger. There's terrorist attacks. Where the hell is S.H.I.E.L.D.? Where's Nick Fury? Where's Captain America? Yeah, Thor's in Asgard. And Hulk, all right, he's a little bit of a loose cannon. Even after the end of Avengers, he might be more harm than good. But where's the rest of them to help out? How come Tony never picks up a phone? I don't have that problem. And partly because I know they're not coming. I knew this wasn't a team-up movie. But I thought they made it clear in Avengers, we get together to fight aliens. If it comes from the sky, we fight it. We get together. If it comes homegrown, then it's on whoever is around's problem. You know, Tony is the guardian of America, right? I mean, he's really the guardian of the world. But my sense is that it should be for him to solve. But he got out of the business. What they don't want to do, the connection I'm trying to make that they want to stop short of is is that Tony is so afraid that he won't put on the suit and go fight. They don't quite say that here, but I get the sense that it would play better if they would write him as a coward. But he wants to go after the Mandarin. And that scene in the bar with Rhodey, he's like, give me the information you have on the Mandarin. I can help out. And Rhodey's like, no, no, this is what the Iron Patriot's for. Stay out of it. I know. That's bad writing. They were telling us that Tony is anxiety-filled, that he doesn't want Pepper to leave, that he wants everything to exist in his little world. I think they should have written the conflict of, I'm so afraid of going out and fighting the Mandarin. And they just didn't want to make him a coward. They did not want to set that conflict up. They thought that would be undigestible to the fans. I think the fans could have gone with it if it was sold correctly, because right now what we get is this weird they want to have it both ways. Yeah, he only gets involved because it's personal. They hurt Happy, so that's why he's going to kill him now. It wasn't for all of the other people that Mandarin's blown up. They killed someone I knew, and then, yes, they make it really personal by taking down his house. Kind of easy, right? Well, if you have missile-firing helicopters, I think anything's easy. I didn't actually think it was that easy. They shot a lot of missiles into that thing to finally take it down. It seemed like two or three should have done the trick. I like this scene, though. I really like how they set up this Mark 42 armor can fly onto Tony. It's a huge thing that's going to happen throughout the entire movie. They set it up in an early scene. Although, this is actually footage I saw at Comic-Con. It worked so much better. Maybe they couldn't afford Run DMC, but the original music for this was Run DMC's Christmas in Hollis. (laughs) Anyone who listened to Silent Night, Deadly Night knows I love Christmas in Hollis. That song will improve anything. Yeah. It's like he's dancing in the scene to Christmas in Hollis, and then they were plays it with cheaper music. Yeah, I mean, he, to activate this Mark IV, he does have to do these poses. I feel like I'm watching someone play Connect on the PlayStation or Xbox, whatever <laughs> it is. Like, he's doing these poses, these hands gestures. It's something between a Wii and an iPhone, what he's doing. He's kind of voguing. 
Yes. What I do like about this scene is his involvement with Pepper. When he takes the armor, you think he's going to put it on himself, and he throws it onto her. She ends up saving him. It's a nice piece of foreshadowing for what's to come. I do like some little moments in here where, hey, why isn't Pepper teaming up with him? She seems to be able to use that armor pretty well, and I, I like that. This character who has risen to CEO of Stark Industries, now she's taking over the armor because Tony's too scared to put it on. You know, I was worried about that. I got to say, one of the few materials I saw beforehand, I went into this, this spoiler-free, the only red flag I had seen was an image of Gwyneth Paltrow in that suit. I don't have a problem with Pepper putting on the suit. I have a problem with Gwyneth Paltrow putting on the suit. She just isn't that kind of movie star. I believe she goes to yoga. She looks pretty good here. She's a mama too, and (laughs) she's clearly been working out. But she's not a fighter. She's not a warrior. And so I am relieved that the way they use the suit is largely for protection, for getting Maya out of the house. She doesn't go and fly up and try to take on the helicopters. I wouldn't have bought that at all. I thought they'd do it because once that scene came out, I learned they did it in the comics. She's her own armored Avenger named Rescue. So since he's building all these armors, I expected her to have her own suit and to get involved once that scene came out in the trailers. That said, I kind of like what they do with it here. She gets the armor, she saves herself, and then the armor goes back to who should wear it. I kind of thought the escalation of having a war machine is bad enough. The more you propagate people in armor, the less special Iron Man becomes. Well, then he's going to become really less special by the end of this film, I think. And then more. (laughs) I guess I was just happy that we were getting some kind of action scene by this point. Something more adrenaline-filled. And again, I don't mind drama, but I'm coming into a Marvel comic book movie. I want some adrenaline action-filled scene, so I'm glad I'm finally getting one. It seems like it's taken a while to get here, though. Yeah, and it's an amazing destruction. It looks really good. I'm sad. I love that mansion. I'm surprisingly more hurt by it going away than losing Downey. (laughs) You know, I feel like at this point, Downey's not making me laugh as hard. But man, that house was still cool. Yeah, and they kind of beat it up last time, but this time it goes away completely. This was in the trailer. I saw it coming, but I'm surprised at how much action it really had. And here it also sets up something which is a writer's crutch. They always seem to have it. It's almost like the Millennium Falcon in Empire Strikes Back. Our super cool suit of armor isn't weapons ready. So we're going to have to kind of limp our way through everything with lesser armor. We're powering him down because he was too powerful in Avengers. He could do too much. We need to cripple him so that there feels like there's stakes. So he can't fire a missile. He has to literally chuck it like a baseball. Yeah, he throws a piano or something. The fight here is less about his toys and more about getting out of the way here. One chopper gets away, the one with the henchmen, of course, and for reasons completely unknown to me, everyone presumes Iron Man is dead when he falls into the rubble, even though we all clearly see him flying out. Well, he's pulled underwater for quite some time and almost drowns. And that's actually a cool scene, too, how Jarvis ejects the hand and then gives Tony a pull. I like the way this action is staged. I like the way it goes. And then, yeah, he just literally flies on autopilot to Tennessee. Oh, they kind of set this up vaguely. Yeah. But uh, you've seen this twice, Arnie. I want you to clarify 
that exposition chunk where he's in the holodeck and he <laughs> recreated the Chinese theater and found the Taggart dog tags and was trying to put it together. I didn't quite understand what I was watching there, but were to understand that there had been several bombs, presumably all done by the Mandarin, that had no metal, had no shrapnel. They were these human bombs. I mean, it's obvious. If we've seen organic matter explode and we've seen people turn red and explode, we know that this stuff that they're inhaling, that stuff that Maya created, is what these bombs are. And that Aldrich has to be in on it. And that Aldrich, at the very least, is working for the Mandarin if he is, in fact, not going to physically morph into the Mandarin at some point, which I'm still clinging to. But <laughs> why do they single out this Tennessee bombing as being central to the mystery? What they say is, all right, let's look at all the places where there have been explosions that match this excessively high heat signature. So high that people are being vaporized. So this isn't a pressure cooker with some nails in it. This is unusually high weapons grade heat. So they look at all of those and then remove the ones that the Mandarin has come on TV and goes, I did that. And so that left like five. And of the five, one of them was an army guy who had committed suicide, theoretically. And so because he found dog tags at the Chinese theater hologram, this is the one that Tony thinks is the best lead. He's detecting. This is an interesting take of Tony Stark because this whole movie starting now, we're going to get Tony Stark using his brains to figure out a mystery versus using his armor to fight a battle. I just took it because that was the one heat signature that was like 3,000 degrees, which matched the Man Chinese Theater explosion. I know they say military stuff, but I just thought, oh, heat signature. Yeah, you say detecting. He's got a lot of good gear. I've seen him in Sherlock Holmes. He does a lot more detecting there because he doesn't have these hollow decks. I don't even know how he got this scan of everything, but maybe he's got little Iron Man drone in the skies just filming constantly. Conceptually, I like what the middle of this movie does. They are giving us all Tony, no Iron Man. He's at his lowest. You know, it's the Shane Black story. I have none of the things that made me who I thought I was. I'm going to have to rebuild myself. Great concept. Love it. How it functions in this story, solving this mystery, I don't think it works at all. He knows that Maya had this whole program here. Immediately he was drunk, he was trying to bang her, but he did scrawl out part of the formula for her on the back of his name tag. Maya was there at his house. He doesn't in any way connect her to what's going on, or he feels like it was better to go to Tennessee than it was to say, hey, I'm alive, everybody, and hang with Maya in seclusion? Two problems. First of all, his suit's broken. He can't really just fly all around. Right. Jarvis chose to this location for him. He kind of passes out, and he's stuck there. And second of all, he doesn't know people are exploding. He still thinks it's a bomb. He still thinks it's the Mandarin. His goal isn't to find out about Maya. His goal isn't to find out about Aldrich. His goal is to find the Mandarin. He doesn't think there's a mystery, except where is the Mandarin? Oh, that's right. He has not seen anybody turn red yet and get the heat signature. Right. Okay, so that's the component that's missing for him. All right. We've seen stuff because Hogan had that one interlude by himself and is now in a coma and unable to tell him about it. Okay. I get it a little better. What I don't get is when we get to Tennessee. This is where Disney stepped in, right? Clearly. This is where we get the kitty team up. Like, I'm listening. What's this kid's name? I'm looking his name up. Okay, was this some guy that was Iron Man for like a story arc in the comics? Why is there a kid here? No, made up. Made up. Didn't you hear, Jacob? He's going to be Iron Man in the fourth one. I'm sure he will be. <laughs> 
I think, Jacob, you're pinning too much on Disney. This is Shane Black to me. I've seen The Last Action Hero multiple times, and putting a kid next to the hero, somebody who can say funny things, hell, again, one of Shane Black's first films, Monster Squad. That entire movie is a bunch of smart-talking kids. It's a Shane Blackism. Did Disney go, oh no, you can't put kids in our movie? I doubt it, but it doesn't feel like Disney mandated it either. Whoever, if it's Disney or if it's Black, but you're dealing with some heavy terrorist themes, I felt like they put in this kid to lighten it up. Say, hey, I know there's some six-year-olds in the audience. Here's their in character. Here's where it becomes less scary. And I just dislike it. It stretches credibility to have this kid being able to get tuna sandwiches and springs and a door the Explorer watch and just anything that Tony needs. I was taken back to Bad Santa. Can I get you a sandwich? <laughs> I wish it was as entertaining as that. I will say perhaps the reason I was going with this is, Stuart, you said you didn't laugh once. I'm laughing still at the Downey performance and the jokes. The fact that I feel the movie has been rushed to this point, and now we're going to slow down for a whole bunch of scenes of a kid, a bully, and a potato gun, it irks me that this is where the director and editor have chosen to focus this movie and let it slow down. In a way, I don't feel like Tony's the kind of guy who needs the wisdom of a child to show him the way, although that is what ends up happening here. This kid is the cure for his emotional ailments and does guide him to find out about the bombs. He's knows everything because he's in this little town. Yeah, Pepper's pregnant. If there is an Iron Man 4, they're going to have <laughs> yes. a kid. That's evident. But I'm not bothered by the fact that there is a kid. I'm just bothered by how much time this kid gets. And I thank God the kids left in Tennessee. And I love that Tony Stark, you know, goes, well, Daz, leave. No need to be a pussy. That did get a big reaction of the audience. I think it was more of a shock that he said pussy <laughs> more than anything. But I really, really feared this movie was going to turn into Iron Man and a half. And I'm so glad this kid stays in Tennessee and does not accompany Tony for the rest of the movie, which is my biggest fear. It could have been worse. That's my attitude towards this. Yes, <laughs> like you, Jacob, I very cynically approached this pairing up as, well, this is where the suits ratchet up the demographic that has been underserved by the beginning of this movie. And he does not look like a kid from Tennessee. I gotta say, this is freshly scrubbed from an oatmeal commercial, this child. I guess he was in Insidious. I don't know him. But he doesn't seem local. And so, in that sense, it feels phony. But I do feel like it gives Downey his best comedy, actually. By seeing how flippant he is towards this supposedly suffering child, we are given our best jokes of the film. And so, in that respect, it kind of works. But I don't really like much that happens in Tennessee. I don't put it on the kid. I actually put it more on the redheaded chick with the fire hands. Come on, Ellen Brandt! Don't you know who Ellen Brandt is in the Marvel Universe? I know you're going to tell me. <laughs> Because I don't know. She is the wife of Ted Solis. That name ring a bell? No. Man-Thing. What? <laughs> Man-Thing. I'm telling you, they're setting up a Man-Thing prequel. We're going to see the explosion. We're going to see how she gets that scar. I mean, Man-Thing, he burns with the touch. These people burn with the touch. I'm telling you, phase three at Marvel, we're going to get Man-Thing. Oh, my God. Man-Thing. You said, Stuart, that we were wasting our time with Man-Thing. <laughs> it all pays off in Iron Man 3. Does it really? Does it really? If the point of watching Man-Thing is so I could enjoy Iron Man 3, I think they failed. 
But here's where I'm getting really rote kind of Terminator, Terminatrix battles here in this Tennessee stuff. It doesn't seem like anything that he's going to learn here as he goes to the bomb site and talks to the mother at the bar is really going to be central in nabbing the Mandarin. He might get a glimmer of a clue, but we know he's not going to crack the case here in the sticks. Why do they have all these other agents trying to get some file? Why are we spending all of this time on these action scenes that are just kind of dull? Melting a water tanker and having it fall over? Uh, Come on. I did wonder, why were they going after this document? Did they know Tony had gone to Tennessee? I mean, everyone thought he was dead. Maya didn't know he had programmed the suit to fly him there. Why are they all of a sudden interested in getting this dossier on this soldier who blew himself up? Right. Why not get it years ago? I mean, this happened six years ago. Why now? How do they know that he's alive when no one else does? It just doesn't work. But I try to keep it surface level. What keeps me actually invested, weirdly enough, is this kid relationship because it's kind of funny. It gives us the Tony that I wanted. Yeah, I mean, this lines with the kids did get the most laughs in the theater. You know, we're used to him being flippant around sexy single women. Seeing him have that same attitude around a kid, there's a certain shock to that. There's a certain pleasure to that, seeing that he he just doesn't give a rat's ass about anyone, really. He's willing to blow anyone off if it's not serving his needs. I think there's a certain pleasure in that. I just don't like how the kid was written. Uh, He's just too smart. does too much. Yeah, I agree. He doesn't flow as part of this movie. He's an interruption to the movie instead of an integral part. And I'm very happy again when he's left in Tennessee. Unlike you, though, Stuart, I did like the fights. Again, this is Tony Stark without his armor Mm -hmm. being attacked by superheroes, basically. They're superhumans. Conceptually, I love it. Tony without the suit having to fight super people is a good conflict. I just didn't think Westworld was the one to do it. I just felt like I'd seen it. It's the T-1000. It's the Terminatrix. It just had too much Terminator with the kid even on it. It just felt like something I'd seen decades ago. I'm like you, Arnie. I'm enjoying this action, I think, because I'm getting some action. This movie suffers from that for the first couple of acts. And conceptually, like you, Stuart, I enjoy seeing Tony using his brain, not having the suit to rely on. My big concern, though, and this will really come up later on, are these extremist soldiers. How do you kill them? You rip off their arm, they grow a new arm. They can heat up, they can melt your suit. They seem so powerful, and yet... Somehow you kill him. I guess if the explosion is strong enough, if you throw him on some electrical wires that will short him out, I'm not sure. I don't ever feel there's a real logic on how to kill these unstoppable soldiers. Yeah, they're kamikaze agents. When they self-destruct, they're gone. Taggart, that guy at the Chinese theater, does not come back. But Savin, Westworld, the guy standing next to him, grows a foot back and walks away grinning. So there is a real disconnect as far as how much of the explosion will take you out and how much you can endure. And I never get that solved in this movie. It's whatever the writers need it to be at the moment. And it only gets worse as the film goes on. I kind of get that each one has their own power levels. Like that chick is taken out with a gas explosion in a microwave and Saverin gets up after this. He's passed out for a while. It seems like he's died, but the extremist brings him back. But later on, he gets a arc reactor burst through the chest that kills him. I kind of feel like there's something about the torso. Like you could take off a limb and it's fine, but like a zombie, if you take out the head or the heart, then they're down for good. Yeah, I do get an X-Men vibe out of this. Even though everyone has the same power, we haven't seen this. All of Tony's enemies have been tech-savvy enemies. Uh, Guys in suits. Yeah, 
This felt weird to me. Yeah, and here, okay, yes, they're biologically enhanced, but that's different than mechanical suits. Uh, it's still science, I guess, pseudoscience. But yeah, it's something different here. It feels like something I would read in the comic book, but not necessarily see in this Marvel Cinematic Universe. Here's what's funny is I'm watching this movie, and there are several beats where I go, I bet this alienates a lot of audience members. And I, this is one of them for me. First of all, the extremis CGI is really poor. It just looks almost as bad as the Roger Corman human torch when they turn orange. It looks animated. It does not look real. It does not look believable. You don't like the E.T. heart glow? No, no. It's just way too fakey. And having all of these super-powered attackers, yes, it's escalation. And after Avengers, it shouldn't strike anyone as too odd. But if you take Avengers out of the Iron Man mix and look at the solo Iron Man movies, it is a drastic step towards comic book goofery than we've seen before. And even in Avengers, I want to remind you, there was some kind of worm with armor on it. Even then, they gave him enemies that were plated. That at the end of the day, it was about people that put on stuff and fight each other. And I do feel like, for me, the non-comic book guy, that stuff plays better. I just don't like the glowing Reiki hand soldiers as much. I guess we needed to be in Tennessee so he could crash in on a beauty pageant. We get our Stan Lee cameo. He's given a 10 to one of these Chattanooga beauties. I hate the scene where he's dealing with that guy to increase the bandwidth. I don't understand the point of that scene other than a Fios ad. <laughs> I was wondering if that was going to maybe be the next Tony Stark. That makes such a big deal. Oh, I grew my facial hair and got my hair cut like you. I felt like there was a lot of playing with the children and with this guy, what Downey has to deal with now when he walks around and people always ask him when he's going to do Avengers 2 and is he going to come back and all this. I feel like this is completely Pomo kind of joke here about Downey's celebrity. Well, we find out the whole point of going to Tennessee, it seems, is for Tony to get that dossier and think the soldier is MIA. But no, it's really AIM. I don't even think it was AIM. It was just, oh, he flipped it around and realized, oh, AIM's in charge. So we see Iron Patriot. He's been flying around the world trying to find the Mandarin. He hacks into his suit because it was built by AIM, I guess. Why does Tony never build his own armors anymore? First it was Hammer. Now it's AIM. But that's his character now. He doesn't make weapons. And while the suit's charging, he drives there. Yeah. What the hell happened to the Mandarin? He's done a couple commercials. He shot a CEO of an oil company. But I do not understand why Ben Kingsley is kept so in shadows. We get one moment where they really tip their hand too much. He gets out of a limo and he walks in and he's ready for his close-up. We see Aldrich there. We know that he is a creation of the media at this point. We just don't recognize that he is a fortune cookie <laughs> until Tony is told to invent a suit that can go get him. Yeah, this is really the moment where I go, okay, there's something up here. When he walks in and they're like, you see the studio in this mansion in the U.S. He's not in Pakistan. He's not in Afghanistan. No, he's in the U.S. on a sound stage. I like this scene. I'm still thinking the Mandarin is, in fact, in charge. There's the line, no eye contact unless you want to be shot in the face. I'm curious, though, who is really in charge, because Killian is giving the orders, but the master is coming from the limo. And my theory's blown by this point. I mean, it's two different guys in the same room together, so he's not going to morph. <laughs> Thank God. That's what I would not have liked. Oh, I'm not the... recommending that it would happen. <laughs> I'm only saying that's what I thought I was ahead of the movie. Now I know I'm not. 
And early on when studying the Mandarin, I think the biggest clue is that Tony goes, there's so much theatrics going on. And here you get to see those theatrics, all of the sets and all of the people walking in. They give us subtle hints, but yeah, nobody's expected to figure this out until the big reveal when Tony goes there. I dislike how quickly Tony gets over everything. With the kid, he keeps calling himself the mechanic, which to me sounds like a Jason Statham character. I think it was. I thought it might have been. Charles Bronson first. And the kid goes, well, you're a mechanic. Build something. Boom. Instant end to all panic attacks. I'll build something. It's not, though. The panic attacks end when he makes the choice he does at the end of the movie. He would have had another one. Maybe it's a cut scene. But I don't believe this is the moment that gets solved. And then in a cave with a bunch of scraps, he makes Iron Man Mark I. But at a Lowe's, the best he can do is a couple of grenades and a glove. (laughs) I do like this, though. It's like secret agent Tony Stark. There's something I like about that. If this is a film about a guy scared to get in the suit, then you don't want to see him build a homemade suit. He's going to build elements of it. He's going to have, you know, this potato cut inspired weapon. I go with it. I like this. I wish this was more of the film about Tony proving that he doesn't need the armor, trying to figure out who he is outside of the armor. Maybe that's consumed him too much and he's trying to get back to who he is. I'm with you, Jacob. I like this. I don't know if I like it for an Iron Man film, but I like it in an action movie thing. You get a guy infiltrating a mansion. This takes me back to the 80s. I mean, this is Lethal Weapon. This is Beverly Hills Cop. But is it Iron Man? That's my dichotomy. I'm enjoying what they're giving me, but they're not giving me what I want. Yeah, you're right, Arnie. Beverly Hills Cop, all these 80s action movies. I'm getting that vibe. I guess, you know, if you're going to do a movie about deconstructing Iron Man and what is at his core, I felt like Nolan kind of did that with Batman, especially in that last film is how much can we break them to find out who Batman is? We're getting that here. How much can we remove the armor and still see what makes Tony Stark into Iron Man? I don't like it at all. I Again, this movie has been adrift and I haven't been invested in it and I haven't liked Tony as much. And to see that this is him going to rebuild himself. We know he's going to do it. The whole point of having everything taken away from you is that you come back stronger. The fact that it looks like this, that he's got a nail gun. I don't get it until I get the whole picture. But with him, with mittens and coils on his hands, he looks just as ridiculous as the Mandarin does when we find him in bed with two honeys. And I'm relieved. I'm relieved when we fully find out that it's a joke. Because you know what? The Mandarin was not working for me. When he shoots that CEO, when he purrs these taunts, I'm thinking, this is dime store ledger. This is not nearly what the Joker was, and it's not working. And this movie is failing because they have a bad Mandarin that they then have to overpopulate his army with glowing Reiki dudes. But (laughs) when we get the reveal and it's done in a toilet flush, I get it. And I go with it. I love Ben Kingsley in this. I was enjoying him as the purring Mandarin because I just know of the Mandarin. I don't think I've ever read a single comic with him in it. But this is another moment where I feel like they could lose their comic book audience because right now, with that toilet flush, they're flushing Mandarin down the toilet and instead you get this. Anyone who came in who has read Iron Man for 30, 40, 50 years and gone, oh, we're going to get Mandarin versus Iron Man and sees Ben Kingsley coming out, they're pissed. But me, never read a Mandarin comic, don't like the yellow menace with the magic rings. I am laughing hysterically at Ben Kingsley's Ringo Starr-like deliveries. 
yeah, you're right, Arnie. This is really for Iron Man, the Mandarin, a Lex Luthor Joker caliber supervillain for Iron Man. This is one of his main nemesis, and to see what they do with them here, I find it funny. I like the comedy. I love Kingsley's performance as a goofy actor. Trevor Slattery. Yes. I love Slattery. He's just drunk and he's passing out. And It's too bad that Richard Pryor didn't live to play this part, isn't it? <laughs> because finally, after last week, in thinking, man, Pryor just would never work in a superhero movie, a part custom made for him right here by making Joker a ridiculous buffoon, a fortune cookie, a man in the suit. They've complimented what Stark was feeling about himself, and I think they've kind of kept the Bin Laden thing. You know, once we found out how Bin Laden was living at the end... Hard drives full of porn. Yeah, and, yeah. the porn, exactly. I think that's what they're really doing here. They're falling through that it's never as scary as what we build up into our mind, and that Nolan is ridiculous by always playing up the pathos and never the humor. I mean, I feel like this is an anti-Nolan movie. I'm not sure where it leaves the plot, but I appreciate the satire on this. It was a really bold choice to do this. And I'm like you, Arnie, suspect a lot it won't sit right with the people that most love the Mandarin character. But I am totally still with the movie at this pivotal moment. I actually prefer this choice for this movie because I felt it was getting too complicated. We had the Mandarin on the television. Killian apparently worked for the Mandarin and Maya worked for Killian and Savrin worked for Killian. It was getting too complex and too hierarchical. By taking this away and having Killian be the big bad, by having him be the mastermind, it cleans it up so quickly and easily and in a funny and fun way. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film when they're revealing this Trevor guy and he's talking about, they offered to get you off drugs. No, they offered me more. It's <laughs> just... Because I got a speedboat. And this is where I was thinking a little bit of Robert Downey Jr. being on screen. I'm like, is Trevor Robert Downey Jr.? I did things in the street that no man should do. <laughs> I'm thinking less than zero. I mean, it's just a great scene, but it streamlines this plot so much. Right when the plot's about to get a lot more complex because now Killian has this plot against the president. Yeah, can we now back up and look at the whole thing from this prism? The bombs that have been going off were not calculated attacks against Americans by a Mandarin. They were faulty biological entities created by Maya and Killian. And in order to save themselves the embarrassment of somebody finding out that they are working on biological enhancement that the president has said don't do, they feel they need to create a Mandarin to cover that up. That is what the Mandarin is. He is a cover for East Bad Press. No, I took it as, and Killian calls it out, that they want to create the terror and they want to create the cause of the terror. It's the military-industrial complex. They want to have a reason to sell these weapons. Ah. And, yeah, they found out that there is... I know in the comic, it's only like 2.5% of people could survive on the extremist virus. But, yeah, there are certain people that are not compatible with it, so they use them as human bombs that they can't track. But I thought they were trying to stop them from blowing up. I thought the overheating was something they were trying to fix. I'm confused. Yeah, it's unclear. I leave this not knowing if these bomb attacks were in fact intentional or if they weren't. The whole thing at Man's Chinese Theater. Does Saverin know this dude is going to blow up at Man's Chinese Theater? I honestly don't know. He goes, can you regulate? Oh yeah, I can regulate. I can regulate. And then Saverin looks astonished when the guy starts to explode. But Killian does say that... 
he owns terror and he's going to own the war on terror. So he will become super rich by arms dealing to both sides by creating this terrorist mastermind. It helps the U S want to build up their munitions and he's going to be the one supplying them a lot like hammer last time. All three movies are bad guys are industrialist arm dealers. Yeah, and I do believe that the Chinese theater attack was calculated. They are like, we gave you a special batch of these inhalers. And as soon as he takes it, that's what makes him blow up. But it's confusing because the rest of the movie is, Tony, you have to come work for us because we're blowing up and we need to figure out how to stop that. Can I take this actually larger to a larger question, though? The Mandarin runs the Ten Rings. We see that logo every time he comes on TV is the Ten Rings. Right. And the Ten Rings is the terrorist group that was hired by Obadiah Stane in Iron Man 1 to kidnap Tony. Has Aldrich run the Ten Rings forever? Did he co-opt the Ten Rings? Was At one point, Aldrich says one line, It was always me, Tony! Does that mean Aldrich was behind his kidnapping in Iron Man 1? Is this a Scream 3, everything you know is wrong rule of a trilogy going on? I was waiting for the Ten Rings to come more to the forefront of this film. Even as the Mandarin becomes this joke, yeah, I thought, what happened to the Ten Rings? They've hinted at that so much, and no, nothing ever is really revealed. I took it that way, Arnie. I mean, we do start in 1999, pre-September 11th, 2001. Everything that happens after afterwards is because of this thing that happened at the Millennium. Because Killian was a nerd that was left stranded on a rooftop, suicidal, he creates this new identity for himself that spawns all the terror that we've been enduring all the way up until present day. I take it that way. There would be no Iron Man if Tony had been civil to Killian back in 1999. Yeah, I was trying to figure out why did they go to Pepper at the beginning of the film? Was that their first attempt to try to get Tony to help him regulate this stuff? See, it's very confusing, and I wish they would have called it out a little bit more and been clearer about what the hell is going on, because you raise a lot of questions with this reveal. A hell of a lot of questions. More than they have time to answer. I mean, we are so far into the movie at this point, and they've still got another plot here. All of a sudden, the focus now is we've got to get the president. Is this because he's against genetic engineering? I mean, they've had a couple lines there about... He stymied the research that Killian has been doing. How long's the guy been in office, by the way? I mean, I would think that he would be due to be reelected. Maybe the better thing to do is get a super PAC and get a guy that will do what you want to in the office rather than kidnapping him and stringing him up over an oil tanker to be publicly burnt. Hey, we're supposed to believe that the vice president is selling out the president because, what, his granddaughter's missing a leg? I mean, she's like 12. <laughs> she's in a wheelchair. She doesn't seem to be that sad. <laughs> well, all right. There's a lot going on here. First of all, playing the president is someone who we saw earlier this year from Die Hard 2. Yes, there was a lot of talks about white men doing Asian things. He was the one doing the naked Tai Chi. <laughs> And the vice president is Miguel Ferrer from RoboCop, Twin Peaks, so many movies. He's aged so badly that when he's shown initially in the film, I'm like, is that Miguel Ferrer? No, that can't be Miguel Ferrer. He's not that thin and old. No, he is that thin and old. And had I known that, I would have instantly known the vice president was in on it. <laughs> yeah, it was a weird reveal to find out that he was important. I mean, the president really hasn't been a part of this story. We've seen some news clips of him. We 
we've known that he's very concerned about the Mandarin, but that he all of a sudden becomes a major character in the last 30 minutes of the movie, it's real strange. And the fact that his VP is in on it, I don't even know what to make of that. It just seems irrelevant. It feels like the kind of dense plotting that Nolan does. Joker creates these scenarios in which we're introduced to new cast of characters very, very rapidly. I just took it as a Nolan-esque flourish here. But I was confused like you were, Jacob. He has a daughter without a leg. Is his point that he wants extremists so his daughter can have a new leg? Yes. I mean, it is never mentioned. Or does he just want to be the president? That's what I don't know. Is it a greed power struggle? Or is it a altruistic help my daughter? My feeling is, if you're so in bed with extremists, injector. Why does the president need to know anything about this? Let's see if it'll grow. She might go boom, though. Yeah, but then you kill him. Just make sure that she's doing a photo out with the press. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I totally think that it's a weird choice to try and make the VP deceitful, largely because he loves his granddaughter so much. I think that's a hard jump to make when we don't know the vice president, when we're given no scenes of him and the president together. It's a really weird twist that I guess you can read as much into it as you want. But I'm not sure I understand understand why any of this is happening, why the president is the focal point for the rest of the movie. But the plan is they've managed to get Iron Patriot or War Machine, Don Cheadle, whatever you want to call him, and he broke into a sweatshop and was zapped by one of these extremist soldiers. They're now trying to pry the suit off of him so that they can then go and infiltrate Air Force One. And this is one of those things that pisses me off. The armor is only as weak as it needs to be in any given scene. The Iron Patriot can fly all over the world, can do all sorts of things, but you tie him up and you tell me if the script didn't require it, he couldn't have just cut through those chains. He has to just sit there doing nothing with the armor. He's a giant robot! (laughs) He's stronger than those chains. Come on. It's a little convenient, but whatever. It's one of those things I go with. Also, later on, Tony goes, you can't have an Iron Man suit. They're all coded just for me. But yet, Saverin can put on the suit and then fly it? Well, AIM did create that Iron Patriot suit. Maybe they built Uh, in that the president could get in there, that the henchman could get in there. You know, it's an easy out. You found the loophole. That's that's it. Because I was wondering, why did you blow up Tony's place? Why didn't you take one of his suits? But you're right. They're signature. They'd have to have converted Tony. That's what Maya was trying to do. Ultimately, Killian even realizes how stupid that is and he shoots her. But you're right. They can get to Cheadle and Iron Patriot's supposed to fly on Air Force One. So no one thinks it's weird that he's walking right on board. I guess he does not go through the x-ray machine and... Yeah, all of a sudden it's wiping out the president's cabinet. And I haven't really been engaged with a lot of this movie, but I really do think the strongest action scene for me comes in this moment when the whatever happens, happens. There's a bomb that blows a hole in the plane, but it isn't Saverin blowing up. But we never see Saverin again. No, Iron Man kills Saverin on this plane. He shoots him through the chest with that thing and says, recover from that, you son of a bitch. Yeah, Saverin's taken off the armor at this point. We're not sure where the armor is, but Saverin's got a parachute on. He was going to jump from the wreckage while everyone else died, and we're not sure where the president is, but Tony shows up and takes him out. Well, Tony doesn't show up. Iron Man shows up. Good point. 
It's a vampire thing. Because he gets it in the chest, that means he's dead. I thought it would have made more sense for him to kamikaze and actually blow the hole in this Air Force One after he gives the president the suit. But whatever. Be that as it may, as contrived as all of the setup is, the falling stuff I thought was phenomenal. It was very good. I liked it a lot. It wasn't my favorite action scene in the film, but it was really good. It was the Super Bowl trailer, too. You saw these people falling out of a plane and Iron Man trying to save them all. And Tony Stark's humor's working here. Remember that Barrel of Monkeys game? I remember the Barrel of Monkeys game. I think it's crank two that has ruined it whenever people are trying to talk while they're free falling it doesn't work and there's a great joke in crank two where jason statham's leaving a message to his girlfriend as he's falling through the air and she gets it and you just you can't even hear it it's just wind i I don't know maybe tony stark has a really good megaphone on that costume to tell everyone we're going to play burial of monkeys now i like the scene there's just little details at this point in our movie evolution (laughs) where credibility is strained that i would expect it to be a little bit more smarter i think what really ruin the scene for me is we already talked about it but was that 3d i really thought this would pop and the whole time i was thinking why isn't this popping instead of being engaged by this action scene now it's the only true action scene where, where it kind of had a realness to it i mean a lot of times i just feel like oh that's really pretty cgi maybe it's just the you know i ride on airplanes and yeah the fear of being able to fall from that distance if you pay attention to the credits there was a skydiving team they called it the barrel of monkey skydiving team. yeah so there's it, some real stuff going on here it does feel real and i get it from the scene and i really like it. What I don't like about this scene, though, is, and it was set up earlier, but after the scene ends, we get this laugh because Iron Man saves everybody and then is hit by a semi-truck. And it breaks apart the armor, and you're like, well, where's Tony? Tony's on the speedboat. So now that you've eliminated all sense of risk for Tony, because his suits of armor can be controlled so well by remote, he could sit at home in his mansion if he still had one, and never leave again. Just be Iron Man. Ironically, Tony Stark is no longer Iron Man. That was the big point at the end of the first film, but now, no, he's not. He's a video game player. Isn't this the draft of Kevin Smith's Superman, (laughs) where, like, Superman's suit flew around and saved people, and Superman himself sat on a couch and ate chips? (laughs) Yeah, it's a very passive hero, but, yeah, this does introduce problems here. It dramatizes the ambivalence that Downey has towards being this character anymore. I'll just let some suits do it. I'm not invested in the same way anymore. Yeah, I understand that there's a point to keeping Downey on screen, giving Tony Stark something to do instead of Iron Man, but it kind of undermines the character of Iron Man if it can all be done by remote control. Why would he ever put himself in danger again? It could just be like that Bruce Willis movie Surrogates. Furthermore, as we get into this final action set with the president dressed as the Iron Patriot strung up like Christ over a Christmas tree, you know, the angel on the Christmas tree here, Tony doesn't even need a remote control him anymore. What's the line he uses? He has some special code and a bunch of suits show up and they're going to fight based on AI. They're not even going to need to be remote controlled now. The house party protocol. I like it, and yet I don't. (laughs) It's so weird that he just sits there and watches as his 35 suits, if my math is right, because he had the Mark 42. We know the Mark 1 through 7 blew up during the attack. So that leaves, what, 34, 35 suits to go attack all these extremist people who are coming out of the woodworks like termites. 
Everyone has extremists all of a sudden. Rhodey gets no suit. He has to get this action scene where he has to swing in his regular khakis and a polo to the president. But again, this was a huge moment where I'm thinking to another Shane Black thing, Lethal Weapon 2. Big showdown on a boat, white guy, black guy, a lot of guns, a lot of action. Yeah, it's really weird. You get this scene where Rhodey and Tony are trying to infiltrate this oil rig, and all of a sudden, Tony, we saw him take over this mansion by himself, stealth around, and all of a sudden, like, he's goofy, and it becomes a buddy cop film here, and he doesn't know how to sneak around. It's a weird disconnect, because we just saw him do that so well, and now, yeah, they just want the comedy. They just want Riggs and Murtaugh now. And yet, there's still Nolanisms. They did some whole weird thing before of, like, you have a choice. You can only save Pepper, or you can go after the president. And that was sort of like a pivotal moment in Dark Knight that didn't really pay out here. And then... And why doesn't he just call Captain America? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, if the president's in trouble, who better to save him than the guy in red, white, and blue with the shield? Yeah, they got an invisible Hello Carrier. They, you know, flow it in. No, it's just these two. It's a dichotomy. It's the problem with escalation at this point. But the key is, if Aldrich wins, the Mandarin will continue. He will have a puppet head terrorist and a puppet head president that he both controls so he can become rich off the death and munitions of everyone and this extremist. I just don't feel like you need to go to these extremes to control Washington. Usually just bags of cash is all that you need. (laughs) He had to get the bags of cash somewhere. We saw him in 99. He had nothing. But this is probably my favorite action scene, though. I love the kinetic energy, all these suits coming in and out, Tony Stark jumping in and out of these suits. It's a far cry from when he needed a gantry to put on the outfit two movies ago, but this is a fun, kinetic, action-packed sequence. I'm torn on this. I do like when he's jumping and flying into the suits and then landing and the suit comes off and he has to find another suit. I do like that stuff. Otherwise, it's a bunch of suits flying around with fire breathers. Like, we've seen Aldrich breathe fire by this point. And they're just, like, tearing these suits apart. I don't know how this is supposed to be resolved if these guys are so strong that they they could destroy all these Iron Man suits. I think this scene's okay. It's a big action scene. I come to expect this. It doesn't give me anything more than what I'm expecting. When I think about great action scenes, I think about the parkour on the construction site from Casino Royale. This ain't that. It's CGI. You know, it's CGI fights. And yeah, you're right. Where does this all lead? If you have an unlimited amount of suits fighting invincible, glowing Reiki men, who's going to save the day if it's not Tony? I knew I knew as soon as I heard she was injected, and I didn't want to believe. I didn't want to believe they were going to do what they had to do. Well, what's funny is, all right, so Pepper is injected, and we don't know if she can make it or not. And there's that scene where she falls, and Tony goes, I'll catch you, I promise. And he misses, which I love, because in every action film, they go, I'll catch you, I promise, and they do. And she falls, and part of me goes, well, all right, well, she's injected with extremists, she might live. And part of me is thinking, well, her contract's up, and this whole movie has been about him not being able to protect her. Maybe she really did die. No. Oh, come on, Artie. There is no suspense. The way they played, they don't even really linger on it. You see a shot of Downey looking down there, kind of terrified, and then they just jump to the next action scene. There's nothing here that tells us that this is a pivotal moment, that this is an emotional moment where you've lost a beloved character. No, but it it is what they were telling us in the first half hour of the movie, Jacob. Everything was about protecting Pepper, protecting Pepper, protecting Pepper. Well, it was kind of obvious what they were doing to me, and I just didn't want it. 
But yes, she doesn't need protection anymore. She can be super all on her own now that she's injected with extremists. I didn't think I could like Gwyneth Paltrow action hero, but I'll be damned if I don't. She is great in this. She looks great. She's acting great. She's feral. She's monstrous. I don't know if she's human or if she's crazed or maniacal, but she kicks ass. She is the one who kills Killian. Yeah, I do like this. How they execute, at least, with... Gwyneth Paltrow here, Killian, he gets blown up in the Mark 42, which doesn't kill him. This maddens me. So explosions aren't going to kill him. He's going to come back from that. So Gwyneth kills him with another explosion. I like how she does it. I, I'm like, hey, if we're going to get a She-Hulk film, maybe she could pull that off. I love how <laughs> primal she looks when we see her rise up and she's hunched over and that gauntlet comes on her and she's doing flips and taking him out. I really do like that. Really? I feel like this is a staggeringly tone-deaf moment in the film. Like, jump the shark. Oh, my God. Tony's like, I have no words. I don't either. I just, I don't, I don't have anything to say about this. This is just shouldn't have happened. <laughs> I kind of like it. It does take Iron Man out of the hero role, but it also fulfills his quest. His whole complex of this movie is, how can I protect Pepper? Sisters are doing it for themselves. Sure, sure. And she now starts to get his complex when he wants to touch her. She's like, I'll burn you. You know, oh, great. Now we have two neurotics. This is not going well. <laughs> I'm curious, though, if there is an Iron Man 4 and contracts get taken care of, is she this fire-breathing monster now? He says he stabilizes her, but is it that they're unstable that they breathe fire? I'm very confused. I think the whole point of Extremis was they wanted him to stabilize it because it's not supposed to turn you into a fire breather. That was a unfortunate side effect. It's supposed to manipulate your DNA. Arnie, you've read the comic. It makes Tony into like a, his brain's like a supercomputer. And, you know, he holds the Iron Man armor inside of his brain and in his bones and the armor leaks out of him now. I mean, yeah, I don't know if he stabilized it, if he removed it from her. I don't think she's a fire breather anymore at this point, though. I feel like they've given themselves the option. They can do this again. They can never reference it again. It's in their arsenal. Whenever they decide they want a fire-breathing Gwyneth Paltrow, and I don't know what occasion that would be. It's certainly not Christmas. <laughs> but if you want one, they can give that to you. I'll stick with Black Widow. This is not the character. You know, I felt like Pepper was the stable one, the one that didn't get action-y, the one that had the level head to Tony's hot-headedness. This is not right, but it's the end, and so it doesn't matter. Everything is changing, and it doesn't seem like anything will be the same when we return to Stark at whatever point he returns to this film. And this end montage is infuriating because major things happen. Major, major things that are never explained. Because we don't get that extra four minutes of scenes with the heart doctor, it's very convenient in the U.S. cut that, oh, you mean there's now someone who can give me surgery and I don't need to wear this giant thing in my chest that gives me a hole? Shame there wasn't that last movie when I was being poisoned by it. <laughs> I don't think it's that there's the doctor. I think the whole point was that he finally made that decision that was, you know, something he felt defined him was that arc reactor in his chest. He knew the technology was there. It's a journey of discovery. Tony Stark knows who Tony Stark is now, and he doesn't need to rely on that power source, and he wants to become whole again. That's how I read it. I'm telling you, this was a magical doctor. He was a super heart doctor, and he was the only one who could have possibly helped Tony. I'm, I haven't seen the Chinese cut, but I'm betting that's the case. That's why he 
was introduced in the first scene is so he could talk about how he's doing groundbreaking things with heart surgery so that he is the only one who could have helped Tony. And if they left that footage in, hey, maybe some Americans might have liked it too. Maybe some Chinese Americans would have liked it. And then if there was something like this surgery could save you or it could kill you and there's risk and make that surgery a tense moment instead of a montage, I'd love it. As it is, my head is spinning. Yeah, it's a lot to process here at the beginning. There's as much that happens in the last three minutes as the entire movie when you think about what's coming. They told us that opening shot, iron suits exploding, but Tony blows them all up. He does not want to be this character anymore, and he is willing to have that component of him, his heart, removed so that he can be normal. And yes, maybe Gwyneth Paltrow is a fire-breathing chick, but he stabilizes her so that he can give her a necklace, and my sense is they're walking away, that Paltrow and Downey are done, and the suit will be back someone else's responsibility to resurrect it. It calls it out. It says Tony Stark will return. Yeah, that's at the end of the credits. Oh, I I have no doubt that Tony Stark will return. I don't think Iron Man is going to return. I will be very surprised if Downey puts on this suit. This is a goodbye. I mean, this is someone that, yes, used their own personal story to talk about what this series has meant to them. Yeah, I was at my lowest, and then this movie came along, and I'm a major star, but I'm tired of it now, and I just want to be a regular actor who doesn't have children and fanboys following me around to the ends of the earth. I'm going to go off and be a normal actor and thanks for the memories but I'm done. Alright, I got two things that kill this for me though. First he drives off. He has dummy I love dummy, you know that little remote arm. He literally puts a dunce cap on dummy in this film. Yeah, love Dummy. He drives off. He takes Dummy with him. And the screen cuts to black. And he says, I know who I am. And then he goes, I'm Iron Man. You don't think that's a snide commentary that no one else is ever going to be able to play this role? You don't think that's actually Downey saying, I am Iron Man. I own this role. I think it was a last-minute editing change. I think there were a lot of last-minute editing changes in this. So much that after seeing this movie, I went to Target and bought the only (laughs) novelization of this, a junior novelization. (laughs) Perfect for six-year-olds. Did you color in between the lines? (laughs) The last line of that book is not, I am Iron Man. The last line of that book is, I am Tony Stark. Tell me that wouldn't have been the perfect end to this arc. He ends movie one, I am Iron Man. Here, he blew up all the armor to end movie three, I am Tony Stark. That is putting the character to bed. Which makes a lot more sense. One of the things that confused me about this film is why he states, I am Iron Man at the end. I am Tony Stark makes perfect sense. Yeah. To say, I am Iron Man gets the audience to cheer one last time. To say, I am Tony Stark ends a character evolution. Yeah, it's what I always said about Hulk. Bruce Banner goes to the ends of the earth to rid himself of the thing that we like about him. The only thing we like about him. They've given us a movie in which Tony Stark largely has operated without his suit. I don't think that people are going to be happy with it. I think that people want Downey cracking jokes in that suit. They don't want to see somebody else doing it. They don't want to see the suits doing it themselves. I think that this is a real hard thing for people that are fans to process here. For me, not the comic book guy, and for me, knowing that this was going to end at some point, Downey is getting older, Downey wants to do other things, contracts have expired, I'm not shocked. 
But yeah, I agree. It is kind of bitter, and they try to mask that bitterness with a, you know, let's fix it with a voiceover at the end. He's not Iron Man. If he's Iron Man, it's a state of mind. It isn't a let's strap on armor and go fight thugs. He's not that anymore and never will be. Well, we'll talk about the future of Iron Man after Recommends, but before we get to that, we have the end credits, and I love these end credits. You've got this kind of mod 50s, 60s, pulpy detective TV series thing going on. I'm thinking the Mod Squad or the old school British TV Avengers. Kind of feels like a finale, the way they have all of the scenes from all three Iron Man films. I mean, that's what they did with Freddy's Dead when they wrapped up the series. Great, great music during these credits. Long credits, about 10 minutes of credits. Did you guys stay for the credits? Of course. Of course! We've been trained to do that. I couldn't have gotten out of there if I wanted to. Everyone stayed rich (laughs) in their seats. (laughs) I liked it. It is the first time that I can think of where the end credit scene didn't tie to the next movie, with the exception of Avengers because of the shawarma. But this was kind of cute. I wondered where Bruce Banner was. At the end of Avengers, we saw him and Tony going off to do science together at Stark Industries. So now we see they're hanging out and just this whole monologue hasn't been Tony talking to the audience. It was Tony talking to Bruce. It's kind of fun, but you know what? It was startling to me because I thought I understood with phase one, each of these scenes not only is an end joke, but it is an attempt to build the next movie. I thought for sure something with a hammer, something with Asgard. We have Thor the Dark World coming out in November. How could they not tease that? But they don't. It was stunning to me that it's, yeah, this joke about a sleepy Mark Ruffalo ignoring Downey as he pours his heart out. And ignoring his just-for-men hair dye. (laughs) Maybe they know they don't need to advertise. Get people excited for the next Marvel film. Everyone already is, so let's get one last scene. Well, let me tell you, I really thought I knew what the after credit scene was going to be in this, because they've made toys, a lot of toys, of what they're calling the Deep Space Armor. And it's this white and black Iron Man armor. And there had been some rumors that Iron Man was going to encounter the Guardians of the Galaxy, including that talking raccoon and talking tree and... green guy. Would have been a great way to deal with his post-traumatic stress syndrome that after going into this wormhole. And in the comics, they just relaunched Guardians of the Galaxy to help pump up the comic book fans who were like, who's these people? And Iron Man is one of the Guardians of the Galaxy. So with all of this, I thought for sure this was going to end with a talking raccoon. (laughs) But no, just the Hulk. (laughs) As someone that is not really versed on what the Guardians of the Galaxy is, aside from you mentioning that raccoon, yeah, that would not have played if that was a plan if they even (laughs) tested that it would have not gotten out of the test screening and there's just no way that that's the ending we need at this point come on it's thor guys we got a thor movie another marvel thing coming and they just totally ignore him i think they have one passing mention of normalcy or subtlety hasn't been the same since he arrived but yeah this is a thorless movie but is it a good movie jacob stewart do you recommend iron man 3 jacob Iron Man 2, it got by mostly on Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. He still had that charm. He still made me laugh. 
I might have not liked a lot of the action, especially that second act, but it had a couple of great action scenes at the end and with that race car thing. And that was able to give me a recommend. That was my line there. That was a weak recommend, but is really downy that won me over and, and made me recommend that one. That was my threshold going into this film is can he still charm me? Can he still make me laugh? Even if I get this really muddled plot, I feel this plot is just so muddled and there's just one too many twists and turns. That seems like a big thing in Hollywood these days. We've got to always keep you guessing, always try to fool you. And it makes for a muddled plot that I kind of disengage from. Why are we in Tennessee? Why do I care about Maya, who's just going to end up getting shot and disappearing from the rest of the film? Can I at least like this leading actor? No, there's something different here. Whether that's my own psychology or there's something in the performance, there's something different with this Tony Stark. At the end, he says, I'm Iron Man, and I'm trying to think back, okay, we've deconstructed this character, we've taken away the suit, we've seen him play video games with it, remote control it, we've had talks of hollow fortune cookies, and I feel like that I am Iron Man at the end, there's a motif here, there is a hollowness to it, there is a deadness to it, there isn't the soul here, there's some alright action scenes, but a crazy, crazy plot, but more, I just don't care anymore. There's no development here. I'm told there is. There's some great subtext, some great symbolism with the hollow suits, with this puppet terrorist that ends up just being an invention of the media. I like all these little ideas, but nothing ever coalesced to really engage me, to really be able to recommend this film. It's a not recommend for me. Stuart. Yeah, I feel curiously little about the movie at all. Coming back to it, I don't have the warm memories of Iron Man. And yeah, that's probably what sustained Iron Man 2. It wasn't a great movie either. It was messy. But I really did like the first half of it. And here, I never get in the suit with him. I just never feel it. He never gets in the suit either, so you're okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's cold. I think why I can't recommend the movie is because they bet everything on the comedy. And I didn't laugh. And you can't win that way. I mean, I thought it was really bold. And I want to say, I don't think this movie is bad. It's not bad in the way that a lot of part threes of superhero movies are. It isn't that it disappointed or or gave me something I didn't want, although that may be true. It's really that it just did not succeed in what it set out to do. It's not a funny movie. And I just don't think it works in that way. So aside from my feelings about whether they should or shouldn't have done that with Tony Stark... They should have made me laugh, always. And so, not recommend. Mild, but not recommend. Before I saw this movie, I had some friends who saw it overseas. And I was reading a lot of internet rage. And I'm like, oh, okay. And it did set my expectations fairly low for this movie. But because of Marvelicious Toys, because of following the toys, I tried to remain spoiler-free. I didn't see the behind-the-scenes stuff or anything till after I'd seen the movie once. But even with all that, I felt I knew what this movie was going to be. So when I read people saying it wasn't very good, I was a little concerned. And then I just heard scuttlebutt and headlines saying critics liked it. So I went in with low expectations. And I was so glad when I walked out of theaters the first time that I already had bought tickets to see this movie again. Because I walked out of that theater and Marjorie asked me, did you like it? And I go, I don't know. I really don't know. This movie was so not what I expected it to be. The Mandarin wasn't the villain. Tony Stark wasn't Iron Man. It in no way even resembled the movie that I expected we were going to get. So the question is, is it a good movie? I don't think it's a good Avengers movie. If you are going in after Avengers and you want more of that, 
That is not this. So if that is what you're looking for, then I don't recommend it to you. But I went back, expectations reset to watch this movie a second time. Because the question is, is it a good movie? And the answer is yes. I think this is a good movie. It's not a good Iron Man movie, but Stuart, you said it bet everything on the humor. I laughed. Watched the movie twice in three days. Laughed at the same points all the time. Ben Kingsley's performance, hysterical. Robert Downey Jr.'s, I know you're cold. You know how I know that? We're connected. As he peels out and leaves that kid in Tennessee, liked it. The score of this movie gives it a great kinetic feel. So different than the rock score that Favreau brought to it. It's a much more classical movie score. But it works very well for this movie. And I like it a lot. The end credits music that gives it this pulpy 60s action TV show vibe. Love it. There's a lot in this movie I love. It's just not the Iron Man movie that I necessarily wanted. So I am going to give this movie a weaker recommend. It's a strange step, but I think a necessary one to reset expectations for Marvel Phase 2. You can't keep escalating after Avengers. You gotta keep these movies about the characters. I wish there was some dropped line about, hey, S.H.I.E.L.D. is busy with something else. You know, have Captain America 2 go on concurrent to this, so there's a reason Cap can't show up to save the president of the United States. You'd think that'd be important. Something along those lines. But I enjoy this movie, and I think it's still another solid step forward for the Marvel Cinema franchise. I think, overall, it's better than Iron Man 2, which is still my low bar. It never has the high moment of the car race scene with Whiplash that that movie has. No action scene adrenalizes me in this movie the way that racetrack scene did in Iron Man 2. But overall, this movie's far more coherent, far less silly than my father kept this formula for this magical element inside a diorama. It feels less compromised than Iron Man 2 did. So I did expect some divisiveness among us because I saw that going in. And I know this isn't the movie people expect. It may not be the movie people want. But I'm happy once the expectations were reset with the movie we got. Yeah, and I hear what you're saying. I think there's a reason to hate this movie. And it's if you have expectations, it will no doubt disappoint you. But if you try to go for what it is, it's a much more pleasant experience. Although I would still say a not recommendable one. Yeah, I found myself mostly bored. I didn't go in with high expectations, but I was mostly bored during it, which shouldn't happen during an Iron Man movie. Mm -mm. I don't care what you're expecting from it. It shouldn't be boredom. And that was something I was really carefully monitoring. I almost had like a pulse ox meter on during my second viewing of this film. My question was, if it's bad, I'll be bored on a second viewing. If it's good, I'll still be entertained. So I was so glad to have that second viewing before this review. I couldn't have reviewed it with you guys after just one viewing. I was shell-shocked by what they did. Mm -hmm. And I could not sit through a second viewing of this. I would have gone crazy. Yeah, I have no interest in revisiting it again. Whenever they have Avengers 2, I won't go back to watching this one to prepare myself for it. I don't need to come back to this one. But it does beg an interesting question. Where does this leave Avengers 2? Well, Kevin Feige says that Downey will return. Their intent is that Downey will be Iron Man for many more years. Which means they may back up that money truck. There are no more Iron Man films planned before Avengers 2. 
But their intent is Avengers 2 to be heavy on Downey. Whedon is writing and working with heavy reliance on Downey as Iron Man in Avengers 2. And then after that, they plan Iron Man 4 with Downey. They're not asking him to sign for one movie. They might take it if that's all they can get, but they're going after him for at least two more. They say that Iron Man is like James Bond, and if they have to replace the actor, they'll replace the actor. Tony Stark is Iron Man, but for right now, Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark, and they're hoping that they can get him to sign, and from what I've read, rumor has it he's really close to signing on for two more. Hmm. It wouldn't surprise me. There is enough money to be had here. Avengers made enough for them to back up that truck. I don't suspect if the issue is over money, Downey would relent. You bring a Bond, I just think about Roger Moore in A View to a Kill. Come on, he's done a good job, but does he really want to be hanging from wires as he celebrates his 60th birthday? Projected into the future, I'm already kind of tired of what Downey's been doing with it. As heresy as it might sound, let's see somebody else go for it. Let's have somebody else step up to it. I feel like I've gotten the flavor of Downey's iteration, and now I want to see somebody else do it. I'm totally cool with Avengers 2 being the goodbye to Downey and the stepping in of a new Tony Stark. I'd say do it after Avengers 2. You do not want to risk Avengers 2 by not having that dynamic. Robert Downey Jr.'s energy was the glue that held the Avengers together. Every scene he was in was kinetic and fun. And you don't want to go into Avengers 2 without him. Whatever he demands, bring him back for that. If Iron Man 4 is the new one... That's fine, but you got to get your George Lazenby out on a solo adventure, not on <laughs> Avengers 2. He could be Daniel Craig. <laughs> they tell us that Tony Stark is returning. I think Iron Man can return. Maybe do a legacy thing. Maybe pass it off to a different in-movie character. I, I think it does a disservice to try to replace someone as Tony Stark. I don't know if anyone's ever going to live up to what Downey has done here. I go the opposite route. Tony is forever. New actors play Tony. I don't want to see Maroney, the long-lost cousin, coming in and doing (laughs) it. No, no way. Downey isn't quite 50. He would be by the time Avengers 2 hits theaters, but I think Downey is Iron Man. I'm not tired of him because of the fun energy he brings. That said, I almost think he's a detriment on two out of three Iron Man films. I almost think he is like lightning, and it's so hard to harness him into a way that is then editable into a two-hour feature. I wonder if his ad-libbing and his going off, keeping to the core of the character but not to the script, is what makes both Iron Man 2 and Iron Man 3 feel very ill-paced. Wasn't a big problem in Avengers, though. So... I want to see Downey back. I really do. And without Downey, I don't want to see Iron Man in the Avengers. But I feel kind of like we talked about at the end of Iron Man 2. Iron Man 2 was the end of Downey's contract. And they had that scene. All right, I'm not in your boy band. I'm a consultant. And then they signed him for two more. And now at the end of Iron Man 3, they're hedging their bets. I'm Iron Man, but I have no suits. I'm done. They can bring him back or they can't. And it's written either way. Yeah, it's for someone else to solve. It is truly a placeholder. It is going to be a problem for Joss Whedon to write himself out of. And he's good at that. I think he'll come up with an answer. Whatever it is, we'll know then. Yeah, the answer will be backing up that money truck. I expect Downey to sign a contract before the calendar year's done. I mean, Iron Man 3, second best U.S. opening ever. Huge global opening. He's worth it. He is worth the money to this franchise. But before that, we've got a lot more to go. Like you said, Stuart, Thor in November, Cap in the spring, Guardians of the Galaxy in August... (laughs) 
Not to mention the non-Marvel properties, Wolverine this summer, and Kick-Ass 2, he still kind of counts, right? We got a lot of Marvel coming. I don't feel like any shortage of capes and spandex in my future at all. This feels like no goodbye of anything. Unlike last one, which was really a peak, this just feels like another link on the chain, a never-ending chain of my future. Well, they're already working on Phase 3, you know. (laughs) I figured. Ant-Man by Edgar Wright is coming out in November of 2015, just a few months after Avengers 2. Everything about that sentence is horrible except Edgar Wright. You're going to get your Doctor Strange movie. Yeah, that I'm down with. That I'm really cool. And someone on our Facebook tipped us off that it could be the director of Evil Dead. A really good choice. I would be really down for that. And a lot of properties have come home. Marvel has recently gotten the rights back to Daredevil. Ghost Rider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my heart is not warming, but go on. (laughs) Blade. Hey, Wesley just got out of jail. Blade (laughs) 4. There's something worse than Blade. Me. And we got Punisher. Who knows? Maybe we'll get that Disney Punisher film where he shoots a potato gun instead of bullets. Never happened. The Punisher's retired. Or they'll sell him off to Lionsgate. It's done. They gotta have a replacement for Iron Man somewhere in the staple. Yeah, I think that replacement is Ruffalo. I mean, keep in mind, he was the best thing about this one. No Hulk movie? They're really not working on that? No plans for a Hulk movie. Joss says that Hulk is a great side character, but it's impossible to make him a main character for the exact reason you state, Stuart. He spends a whole movie trying to keep in what everyone wants to see. Yeah, okay, I get it. So not in Phase 2, not announced for Phase 3, but they are looking to the future, and Kevin Feige said 30 more years of Iron Man films, and they know it won't be Downey for all of them. I would hope not. But He really will be an Iron Man at that point. <laughs> Iron Lung Man. <laughs> they didn't get Fantastic Four. I know that remained at Fox, and I do believe it'll be a movie next summer or after. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. We'll be back next week to go back to the world of Superman with Supergirl. Ah, uh, yes. If I hadn't gotten my fill of kick-ass blondes, then uh, it should be satiated next week. <laughs> or so you think. <laughs> be sure to join us for that at NowPlayingPodcast.com. And a reminder to listeners who may not have been listening to our Superman retrospective and coming back for the first time since we did Avengers a year ago, we are currently doing our spring donation drive. Right now, for a donation to Now Playing of $10 or more, you get Five zombie films. The four Evil Dead films, Stuart mentioned, the fourth one may be by the director of Doctor Strange. Plus, later this summer, World War Z. I got to see trailers before Iron Man 3 for that film. It looks big. Big, big, big. And not like the book, which I'll be covering at Books and Nachos. And for a donation of $25 or more, it's our largest gold donation package ever. This Friday, Return of the Living Dead 2 goes out to donors. We're doing all five Return of the Living Dead films. Yeah, you heard me right. There's actually five of them. I didn't know that either. I thought they stopped at three, but hey, thank you Sci-Fi Channel for Necropolis and Rave to the Grave. Yeah, part two was the last one that I saw, and we're covering it this Friday. And also, in case Rave to the Grave isn't (laughs) enough of incentive, we are doing 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later, the last kind of zombie-like movies to give a zombie-filled summer. It's a huge amount of podcasts that we're doing, and we're doing them as a thank you to donors who donate $25 or more for the gold package, $10 or more for the silver. We're not selling these podcasts. What we're trying to do is raise the money for the podcast we do every week. This podcast today, we're able to do 
do thanks to donors. Stuart's on a brand new mic thanks to donors. It's the donors that allow us to do every show. And if you think about it, we're doing for free at nowplayingpodcast.com over 50 podcasts this year. If you were to pay for 50 songs on iTunes, that would be around 75 bucks. But we're doing 52 shows for free at least. And then in addition, already 12 bonus shows for donors. And that's our way of saying thank you and giving back to those who support us. So even if you don't want to hear zombie podcasts, if you like our Superman retrospective series, if you like this Iron Man 3 review, we're doing Star Trek in a couple weeks. All of these podcasts we do is thanks to donors. So you can donate now by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com and finding instructions there. So Jacob Stewart, I will talk to you Friday for Return of the Living Dead 2. And until then, Avengers Assemble! There's been speculation that I was involved in the events that occurred on the freeway and the rooftop. I'm sorry, Mr. Stark, but do you honestly expect us to believe that that was a bodyguard in a suit that conveniently appeared despite the fact that... I know that it's confusing. It is one thing to question the official story and another thing entirely to make wild accusations or insinuate that I'm uh, a superhero. I never said you were a superhero. Didn't? Mm -mm. Well, good, because that would be outlandish and uh, fantastic. Truth is, I am Iron Man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing Avengers Retrospective Series. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. This is a whole new level of weird. I don't feel inclined to step away from it. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archives, where you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics movie series, such as X-Men, The Fantastic Four, Blade, and Punisher, plus DC Comics reviews of Green Lantern, Batman, and Superman. Good luck keeping up. We also have non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many more. I'm bringing the party to you. You will also find individual movie reviews, such as Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. We made this thing, all of us. Please. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Here we remain as a beacon of hope. Shining out across the stars. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. You've seen what he becomes, right? I have. And it's beautiful. Godlike. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. You have to explain that statement, sir. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Is it too much of a problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm okay, okay. I really need your help here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Get yourself something nice for me. I already did. And? Oh, it's very nice and very tasteful. 
Now Playing's Avengers Retrospective series is edited by Arnie. I've moved on to the next one because that's what we do, right? I mean, that's the job. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Wow. You spoke to me with what you did, and I know that you knew that I'd be listening. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Marvel Studios, Paramount Pictures, Universal Pictures, or the Disney Company. The Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, The Incredible Hulk, and all that the Marvel Universe contains are the property and trademark of the Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. Any last words? Hulk! Smash! Next time, baby. <laughs> Tony Stark is suffering from PTSD after the alien attack in New York. I typed this f on my iPhone because my laptop battery died. What I actually have is Tony Stark suffering from PTSD, anger the alien attack in New York. <laughs> so this is going to be a f***ed up plot summary. <laughs> the voice recognition software, the emails you send me are hilarious sometimes. I just got to say it. <laughs> But when Tony's bodyguard and friend, Hapoy Hogan, <laughs> but when Tony's... <laughs> Is that for the Chinese audience? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Destroy Tony's mansion, and Tony and his girlfriend, Pepper Potts, barely escape with their lives. Half the time, I'm saying, Tony, I'm reading tiny. <laughs> <laughs> Colonel James Rhodes, formerly known as War Machine, eat Magine. <laughs> it's good for you. <laughs> There's your product placement. <laughs> How do you become the War Machine? <laughs> eat Magine. <laughs> and he drives his high-priced sports car into the subset with the words, Slow. I am Iron Man. <laughs> You said subset. It is the sunset. <laughs> Just FYI. At least I didn't say his high rice sports car. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I think you could read that plot and it would make more sense than the plot that's actually real. Just read the iPhone version. It'd be funnier. I, I, I feel like I'm Ron Burgundy, subset. Go with it. I'm reading whatever you put on the prompter. <laughs> It might be a subset without Downey. <laughs> yeah, I saw a couple t-shirts. Someone had, like, the black shirt with the blue arc, uh, what's it called? Arc, arc reactor. reactor. I saw Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and that three-way movie with Heather Graham because of Downey. All right, it may be because uh, I wanted to see a three-way with Heather Graham. Matt, you called it the three-way movie. I know why you saw it. <laughs> I can't remember the name. Was it two girls and a guy? Oh, there was that. There was two girls and a guy, and then there was One Night Stand. But I don't oh. think he had a One Night Stand in One Night Stand. I think that was Wesley Snipes. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, uh, I. Oh come on, this kid sidekick. This is all Disney, right? There's no way this was. Oh, I think she, he means the kids in the restaurant, don't yeah. you? Oh, okay. the, the kids, yeah, every kid. We'll get to Tennessee one. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, never so. mind then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just hold back. I know you want to tear that up. <laughs> <laughs> like a robot dog. <laughs> and even in Avenger and even in Inv- uh. <laughs> It was the Super Bowl trailer too. You saw these people falling yeah. out of a plane and Iron Man trying to save them all and Tony Stark's humor's working here. Remember that Barrel of Monkeys game? I remember the Barrel of Monkeys game. You saw the Super Bowl? <laughs> He watches it just for the Marvel trailers. Okay, I was real. Not even the commercials, just the Marvel trailers. I'm like, I ain't watching no Super Bowl. Why would I know this footage? I I, I think it's... 